All right, everyone, welcome back to the Great Divide Podcast, episode 83. A very fitting number since the album we're discussing came out in 1983, and we are about to begin uh, side two of The Crossing. And we've taken a long break in between side one and side two, so uh, let's welcome in our host, our co-host from Norway, Mr. Svein Hjorthog. Hello, Svein. Hello, Tom. How are you? I'm doing fine. How was that? How was that pronunciation of your last name? Was it awful? You've done worse. Okay, good. And I'm not sure you've done better, so that's pretty good. <laughs> nice. You would you would think that after what? Uh, what's it been now? Almost uh, six, seven years. Hopefully, I'll get it right at one point. Yeah, you know, we started in June uh, 2012. Yeah. So there's an anniversary coming of sorts. A that's... seven year, the seven year itch. Oh my gosh. Wow! Amazing. Yeah. That's when things will get difficult. Oh, that that that's when it gets difficult. Oh, I, I can't wait for that. Let's see, <laughs> let, let's see how that looks like. We're going to go searching for other co-hosts. <laughs> but then... Seeing we'll, if the grass is greener. Yeah, there will be tears and uh, our teeth will grind, but maybe we'll find back together and be stronger than ever. <laughs> it's very possible. Of course, uh, of course, I've already had those flings with uh, Arlen and CJ. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't I, think I've had I still it. came back to you. No, that's true. Yeah, I guess you did. Cue the song. <laughs> the one I love is still in you, Tom. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, that wonderful introduction aside, um, how does it feel to be coming back to this album that we've taken such a long break from? We have not done that before in a deep dive discussion. No. We've just plowed right through it. But we've taken a pretty hefty break this time, almost two months. That's true. Probably a break that won't matter to all the people who say they haven't caught up yet. So for them, it's just, here's the next one. Uh, so the most visible thing will be that the Yuletide up here in the middle of the album discussions. But uh, yeah, I guess this will be visible in the length of our discussions, because now we have even more prep time and more time for research. Maybe, you know, 10 minutes instead of five for you. But uh, <laughs> I have a lot of research for some of these songs. So yeah, they're probably a little meatier than they would have been. That's good. I think we're going to need it for these. So yeah, it's going to it's going to feel good to finally take down the tree, which is the Yuletide episode that's been sitting on John's page as the main episode ever since it came out. And it's starting to feel like uh, a neighbor who has not taken their Christmas lights down in almost March. Oh, when the trees come down, you know. Yeah. We don't like to take the trees down. Yeah, it should have been down a long time ago. So so we have come back. We have come back to do that, just that. But yeah, it's uh I've I've done a lot of research too on some of these, but um these are some of these songs are are difficult lyrically. In fact, all of them are, I think, in in most respects, probably more yeah. so than we maybe thought when we said, "Oh, let's do the crossing." You know, let's knock the crossing out. But uh, I personally have been amazed at how difficult some of these songs are to decipher. And um and let's put it out there too before we even get started that our goal here is not to decipher quote unquote these songs because some of them can't necessarily be deciphered and and you uh, you can't necessarily have a, an easy explanation of these songs but uh we're just going to be giving our interpretations some of our thoughts about what they could be about what they might be about what they are about for us and uh, some of your interpretations out there may differ. And we've got a lot of good feedback from the first one. I mean, uh, one thing I want to mention is, um, you know, talking about chance, for example. I'd always heard that line, 
uh, a rain came down on a cold new town, and I didn't know what new town. I mean, I, I had an idea of what Newtown meant, and I, I mentioned it in the last episodes of being like a factory town kind of thing. But I just, I did, I just thought he was talking about a new town that was built up specifically for the purpose of a factory. But Mark Dunwillis pointed out that there actually were things that were and are called new towns um, in the UK and Scotland, which were these like newfangled towns that were built up and meant to be more modern and did and were, you know, tied to some sort of industry. So that actually gave some new insight to me about the song Chance, which was interesting. So, you know, always good to hear from the listeners out there. So I'm sure we'll hear from them, too, when, with some of these songs, because there's a lot to uh, consider with the lyrics of these tunes. Oh, definitely. That said, we should probably just get going. Side two. Side two. Harvest Home. Let's flip the vinyl. Flip it. It is natural to start at the beginning, which is the Chris Thomas-produced version, which became the first ever single released by Big Country. That single was released on the 17th of September, 82. It was number 91 in the UK charts. The 7-inch featured Balcony on the B-side. The 12-inch would also add Flag of Nations in addition to Balcony. And uh, just to mention this first, I've often wondered if we should even count this single as the first single from The Crossing. Uh, We often think of The Crossing having four singles, with Harvest Home being the first. And yes, the song is on the album, but that was a different version of the song. It was re-recorded, it was changed, and the change is at least as drastic as the re-recordings of Kansas and Ships, which also originally belonged to a different era. Yeah, I wouldn't count it personally. No, I wouldn't either. It definitely is part of The Crossing era, but I, I don't think as far as the crossing album i don't i don't see it really as fitting no it sounds so different it sounds very different plus it belongs really in that early days type of uh, period from pre-album period so uh yeah i do lump it in with the crossing era of releases but i do not regard it as a crossing album single which means in that case the crossing only had three singles and that's a low number of singles from an album by any stretch especially such a hit album as the crossing so that's worthy of discussion in its own right if they really did what they could with uh, with singles especially in america which didn't even get chance and i think chance could have done wonders in america personally but we talked about that already yeah so uh yeah but to look back on on that single and the chris thomas version i have some quotes from chris briggs we don't often have chris briggs quotes in this thing so those are interesting to look at and these are from rolling stone magazine Uh, the 8th of December, 1983 edition, in case people want to go and get that issue. And what he says that, there are a number of interesting things. For example, he said, for whatever reason, the first version of Harvest Home didn't gel. Maybe we put them in the studio too early. Maybe it was because Stuart had never sung up front before. And then uh, the article goes on to say, no matter what, Briggs was beginning to panic. Had he made a mistake? Had his instinct been wrong? He said, I was definitely having crisis of confidence. I don't want to over-romanticize it, 
but I didn't have a very happy Christmas last year. Hmm. And then the article goes on. The sessions with Chris Thomas did yield one single, Harvest Home, but that track barely made it into the top 100 in Britain. It was a critical point in Big Country's career. They were a new band, and they had failed to come up with the goods after months of working with one of the world's top producers. Briggs had enough faith in the group to give them one more shot, but if it didn't work this time, well, there probably wouldn't be a third chance. The band decided to try Steve Lillywhite, the young producer who had helped shape U2's similarly guitar-dominated sound. Steve had four spare days, says Briggs, and we went into the studio just to establish that he and the group could work together. Lillywhite made one important suggestion. Instead of rehashing the same material the band had plowed to death with Chris Thomas, why didn't they try recording a new song? Big Country selected a tune called 400 Miles, an anthemic anti-war number Adamson had written at the time of the Falklands crisis about, quote, someone who goes off to war and just doesn't come back, unquote. With Lillywhite being on board, the magic that had been present at the demo session suddenly reappeared. It worked the first time, says Briggs, and it worked better than we ever could have hoped. The song's title was changed to Fields of Fire, and within a matter of weeks, Big Country had their first top 10 single in Britain. Briggs had been vindicated. I finally came off the Valium, he said. Hmm. So <laughs> I, uh, I think that was a very interesting section because yeah. I, I don't think I've seen him put into words just how nervous he was about this. That's very interesting. He uh, really, really, really wanted the band to succeed, but they had no idea it would work as well as it did. Yeah, and that really uh, underscores what we what we talked about when we talked about uh, in the intro sections of these, these shows about how difficult that must have been for them to have quote-unquote failed with that first single exactly which uh i don't know whose decision it was to even proceed with that single after they abandoned those sessions but uh, yeah we talked about that too so let's just move on uh have more comments i have um of course tony's comments that he made in 2006 where he says about harvest home the crossing version of harvest home was the second version of the song and a better one in my mind the original lacked power, something we discovered when we started playing it live. It brought a smile to my face on hearing the syncopation between the bass and drums at the end of the track. Hmm. And finally, I have a quote from Stuart in uh, Melody Maker 1990, which uh, is not all about Harvestone, but he gets into it a little bit at the end, which is, We were playing club gigs. Our biggest crowd was about 100. I remember when I was still in skids, seeing you two play to about 100 people at Valentino's in Edinburgh, and just thinking... This is brilliant. Everybody else is just pissing against the wind. You think that when you see bands in their infancy. I don't think bands can sustain that level of intrigue over eight or nine years. Harvest Home was the most immediate song we had. It had an obvious verse and chorus. Stuff like In a Big Country and Fields of Fire wasn't even written when Harvest Home was recorded. That single came at a time when I realized that the band had a grasp of something really special. So that's it. A lot of quotes about that song from that time. And I think that's uh, important what Stuart said at the end there. When they did Harvest Home, I think that was regarded as the strongest song they had at that time. That was regarded as the one with the biggest potential. And they would obviously write songs with even more potential. But uh, that was the one that they did release as a single. That was the one they betted on. And uh, they've played it ever since. It's always been there, Harvest Home. Tony and Stuart say very complimentary things about the song. And of all the songs they had from the Chris Thomas days, it was an obvious single choice. But it was also obvious that it didn't live up to its potential. So, And I, I think musically. Lyrically, it was largely the same. So musically, it needed a shine. And 
they they could shine that one. So it's a kind of interesting to compare those two versions. And uh, here comes the predictable one, the comparison of the Chris Thomas version and the Steve Lillywhite. We almost don't really need to do it, but uh, we, we, uh, we kind of have to look at it a little bit. Otherwise, this isn't much of a deep dive. So um, we'll point out a couple of even earlier versions than uh, the Chris Thomas version, which is the Town Hall version. Town Hall, May 1981, mm -hmm. the first month Stuart and Bruce are working together. This demo version, or this, I shouldn't call it demo even, it's really an early working version, is featured on CD2 of the Crossing 30th Deluxe Edition. So everybody should have that one, or at least it's easy to, to uh, get your hands on, or getting hard, I understand, but uh, I think most of us would have that one. So there you can listen to very early version, a slow version, almost brooding version, the very cool version. And then we have the Chris Thomas produced version of the song from June 82, which uh, a year later, and we all have heard that one, obviously. We also have a very interesting live in studio version recorded for the radio show, the David Jensen Sessions, from the 23rd of yeah. August 1982. It's on the BBC box set. It's also been released standalone on some other releases. That one is relatively close to the Chris Thomas version, which had been recorded just two months earlier. Thank you. 
And that Chris Thomas was obviously released just a month later as a single after they did David Jensen. So that was very similar to how the song was played live at the time. No big change, really. But then finally, we have a version on Rarities 4, which comes from a collection of playthroughs of material that was done around the time the album was recorded. So many uh, different versions. I think the main ones, musical differences between the Thomas and Lillywhite versions are changes in tone, energy, and uh, primarily the Barnstormer outro. And the Barnstormer outro, what I mean with that, if you listen to the Chris Thomas version, there is an outro where Mark just kicks in an extra gear. And that was a part that was retained for the live performances. They would retain the Barnstormer outro, where they dance around stage, or that's when sort of suddenly Bruce fly to stage left and Stuart comes flying stage uh, right. It's almost shades of uh, Jobson and, and Stuart from Skids. And that was the early versions of Harvest Home when they played that live. You would see some of that. And uh, Tony dancing around on stage. And that outro was changed in the Lillivite version. There is no Barnstormer outro. It's just simply a play out. After they sing the chorus at the end, they uh, stop singing, but keep playing what they do without changing it up, without going into another rhythm. That is the one thing that I would miss from the Chris Thomas version. I would have retained the Barnstormer outro, where they kick into that dancey, little feisty outro bit and do that. Because uh, no matter how they recorded it with Lily White, that's how they kept playing it live. And they would keep that and they would keep the dance on stage. So that is probably because they sensed that worked really well. Uh, there's also a couple of lyrical differences. The first version of the song has some interesting differences, especially. They, um, most of the lyrics are similar to the album version, 
but there's a noteworthy one that uh, made it into the lyric book where it says at the end of the song, my home's on fire, my wife has fled. <laughs> that is um, interesting. In the album version, they don't really replace it with anything. He just keeps singing the chorus or in a harvest home, yo. <laughs> so they just took them out, basically. There's also uh, a change in the chorus where instead of singing in a harvest home, he sings on the demo and it sounds like it's I want that life uh, or I want that land. But I think it's I want that life. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. And in fact, I think um, that's I think that's actually the part where he originally sang my home's on fire. My wife has fled. I can I can actually hear that in that in that version of the song. Yeah. I was I was going to bring that up. I uh, I mean that's it's, it's hard to it's hard to totally make out. But what I hear there is knowing that those were the original lyrics. I hear him saying, "My home's on fire, my wife has fled." It's like my home's on fire, my home's on fire. Now maybe he says maybe he says something first, but that oh, that definitely. before my home's on fire because there is some line there, and then it's followed by my home's on fire, my wife has fled. Um. So yeah, it's it's open for debate, but I I do think the my home's on fire and my wife has fled lyrics are in that that uh, that original demo. We'll put it in so people can uh, make up their own minds. Yeah. It's such a weird line. I remember, um, I remember reading those lines, and uh, w- when the crossing came out, and thinking, "This isn't in the song. What the hell? What the hell does this mean?" <laughs> of course, we've talked about that with other songs too, that where like the scouts in the stairwell will kiss again. But you've got to wonder. You know, th- those lines, as you said, those lines were removed from the song very early on. So how did they? How did they make it into the liner notes of the album at that point? I don't understand that. But uh, that that confused me for many years. I may have an answer to that, actually. Okay. But which I'll reveal uh, at a suitable point. Ooh, I w- can't wait. But uh, yeah, there are, there are many examples of this where lyrics were retained in the lyric booklets that clearly weren't sung on the album. Uh, we have. Um, let me see how to do this. Maybe I'll maybe I'll just do that explanation right away. It's, because it's uh, very interesting. I mean, the inwards thing is really the the most interesting because that helps really reveal some of what he is singing about more than the, the the thing the example in harvest home which makes no sense right <laughs> doesn't reveal anything but uh stewart had a lyric book and uh, he actually had many lyrics book but he had one lyric book covering all the skids years and he had one for the crossing and he would make one for steel town mm. these lyric books uh were probably handed in for transcription around the time they did uh, the Chris Thomas thing, and they were never changed, never updated for the Lillevite album. That is the only thing that makes sense, because these lyric books, uh, they uh, have been shown on fan conventions by uh, Stewart's brother-in-law, and people look in them, and there's where these lyrics appear. They're all intact in these lyric books, and uh, that's the only place they could come from. 
I know Bruce. When we spoke to him in episode 60, we spoke about this. And he said, well, it might have been a late change and there wasn't time to update it. I'm, I'm not so sure that's actually the case anymore because after seeing those lyric books and knowing that these were handed in to transcribe the lyrics um, and these lyrics are sort of signed with Stuart's name and a year, the year he wrote it, they weren't written in 83. <laughs> they had plenty of time. They weren't late changes. These changes were here well ahead. And especially as we'll get into the next song, the, the page where he wrote out the lyrics to to uh, the Lost Patrol, as it says in the book, was written in eighty one. Wow! So uh, no late changes anywhere. There's actually uh, these lyrics were there well in hand. So uh, I want that life was an early one, and we hear it indeed in the town hall. So that's just yeah, that wasn't a late change. It was never taken out. <laughs> so that's. Uh, that's just something that comes, I think, from those books. And uh, it's, it's sort of a sign of things to come with track records because they should have been updated, you know, when Phonogram did it and they had the Lily White recordings. Yeah. But I think they just had those around since those days. So uh, what we know, given that these lyrics were in his book, is that this can't have been the last minute change. It was very much never updated from Stuart, uh, Stuart's book when he handed it over to be transcribed in mid-82 for the initial album preparations. So uh, with that, leaving it aside, let's look at the actual song we have. The song that uh, is on the album, the song we know and love, even though there's love enough for, for both versions, but the album version is really the one. The music, extremely upbeat very celebratory feel. It's very infectious. And when I got this album on cassette tape, that is what I go back to, playing this thing for the for the first time. Chance was the song that led me to the band. That was the song that made me want to explore more. But Harvest Home was really the first song that I latched onto and would listen to over and over again. And I can't say why at this point. It's so many years ago. I just really liked it. It probably sounded like nothing else I'd ever heard. And the title alone was just so unique. I took it at face value. A song about the farmer bringing home the harvest and celebrating that all the harvest had been brought home, really. And uh, what I didn't know back then is that uh, there was a, a long-standing British tradition for this, singing songs to celebrate the harvest. I know it now. But when I started looking closer at this phenomenon, I was not prepared for just how many of these songs there are and how far back the tradition goes, and that the tradition is observed even to some degree today. So I found pages, pages and pages of stuff, of these songs and the tradition and examples of songs. And I took a closer look and found many traditional harvest songs for grain harvest, several modern ones written in the similar style. Uh, most are English, some have Celtic influence and even Celtic language. and. Uh, some are specific to reaping the grain. Some are about dancing in the fields. Some are more celebration feasts or almost like you have a Thanksgiving type dinner when it's all done. Uh, and uh, many, many old songs usually uh, set around the full moon of August, which is when most harvests uh, are brought home. So many old traditional songs to celebrate this. And I, what I did not expect to find was one of the more prominent mentioned songs from this tradition is one called Harvest Home. So this is not our Harvest Home. This is a traditional song celebrating the harvest, bringing the harvest home, called Harvest Home. And uh, so obviously that got my interest. I started looking closer at that one. 
according to customs, the harvesters decorated the last sheaf of grain with ribbons and flowers and carried it at the top of the last cart, and they would sing Harvest Home as they came in from the fields. And there are many, many versions of the Harvest Home song. With the Most of them have uh, the first line, Your hay is mowed and your corn is reaped, your barns be full, your howls heaped. Come, boys, come. Come, boys, come. Almost shades of skits there. Um, <laughs> and merrily roar out our harvest home, and merrily roar out our harvest home. And then the co- chorus will sing again, harvest home, harvest home, and merrily roar out the harvest home. Some versions of this song are so old that they go back to a time when uh, the Christian church in England could still force farmers to pay one-tenth of their income hmm. um, in farm produce to the church. So uh, just by by doing these harvests and having to pay one-tenth of their income. Um, it reminds me of the old Spinal Tap song, Sex Farm. <laughs> yeah, poking your hay. <laughs> but uh, you, you hear about this uh, this Christian church Get demanding one tenth is also mentioned in the Harvest Home song, where they sing, uh, "We cheated a parson, we'll cheat them again. For why should a blockhead have one in ten? So they're <laughs> sort of proudly saying, "Oh, they, they didn't get their tenth. Maybe they got a little bit, but they certainly didn't get the one in ten. And then they go on to sing, <laughs> "One in ten, one in ten. For why should a blockhead have one in ten? <laughs> so <laughs> I love it. It's actually very nice. And, and the song goes on, and there's uh, there's a lot. Um, of verses here and the final chorus everybody sings harvest home harvest home and high for the honor of old england so it's uh, it's very uh, nice to see there's actually a decent recording of this song on on youtube so amidst a lot of arguing and yar and uh, harvest homing let's play a little clip of that one so you can hear how it's like Shane McGowan sing sing that chorus. I could hear him yeah, singing I would that. Love it. <laughs> I, would I should love have blocked Get what it did. <laughs> I don't think he can sing anything these days, despite their annual Christmas tour. Yeah. Oh man. All right. Yeah. So clearly, this song does not have much to do with our version of Harvest Home, but Big Country's version does look at this tradition and put his own spin on it. And uh, you can read a lot into Big Country's version of Harvest Home. It definitely uses a lot of farming language and farming uh, situation to color the song and tie it into this tradition. And that's, uh, 
that's really cool to discover and see. And maybe this is bleeding obvious to all the <laughs> Britons among us who, who listen, like all the other things we talked about, like the new town. It's not obvious to me, and I guess it's new to you too as well, Tom. Yeah, for the most part, your your research kind of mirrors a lot of what I what, what I did as well. So yeah, yeah, we'll see more about that when we get into the actual song discussion. But before we do that, I want to take the just take a little moment to share a more personal anecdote. And it's kind of funny that this way of singing as you bring the harvest home, that it's such a solid tradition, and especially that the big country song kind of taps into the same thing, at least on a small scale. Because back in the day, like, like I mentioned, I took this title at face value. I took the phrase harvest home to mean exactly that. And uh, probably knowing that it probably was a little naive, but then it turns out that it kind of is exactly that. It is <laughs> taking the harvest home. And uh, as for the rest of the lyrics, yeah, they, they are about more than that. But for me, this song was all about bringing the harvest home. This was the checkered shirt working class band making an honest song about the aspect of farming and literally reaping what has been sown. And uh, with that, the song actually became a soundtrack to me, to me working in the fields, working on getting the harvest home back in those early to mid-1980s. So this song makes me think of my grandparents. Uh, My grandparents were farmers. And uh, as a kid and young teen even, I would stay there with them for part of my school breaks and especially the late summer break, and then again in the autumn break, where I would help them bring in the harvest. And there were lots of people doing that, and I would be amongst them, actually in the fields, working. And that cassette tape would be in the tape player, being a glorious soundtrack hmm. to doing that work, and especially the song Harvest Home, and that came on. That was my theme song. I was living that song. I was bringing the harvest home. So that was my soundtrack to all of that. And uh, that is what the song still brings forth, those type of memories, so many memories from that time. So uh, I would latch on to other songs after a bit, and they would uh, eventually eclipse Harvest Home over time. And it's been actually a very long time since Harvest Home was my favorite song on the album, but it's always had a special place in my heart, really, because of the memories of those early days. And especially now that my grandparents are gone, they have been gone for some time, and their farm is no more. The buildings and the fields are still there, but apart from when family goes by there to stay for vacations and things like that, the house is empty and the fields are overgrown now. But uh, the music and the memories are still there and the music helps cement a lot of those memories. So uh, that's part of my personal backdrop to this song. And that's uh, that's always going to color a bit of this song for me. And uh, as the years went by, I, I started to realize that the song may not have been intended as straightforwardly as I first took it and other aspects of the song would emerge. And that doesn't ruin any memories or anything like that. The song still means what it did then. But later on, in uh, out of that initial context of mine, it does add layers of complexity that I actually appreciate more now. So with that, that is my background. Had to be said, now over to our version of Harvest Home. And I'll start with the lyrics. I'll dive straight into the first verse. And I will uh, come to a screeching halt right after the first line. Who saw the fences falling? Right off the bat, something is a little strange here. 
and the, the phrase fences falling can really refer to a lot of things. But in the context of farms or doing the work, the upkeep, the harvesting, I see this almost as uh, genuine fences falling, as a symbol. It's a sign of decay. It's a sign of not tending to things. So this is not the usual state of affairs, of taking care of your farm, taking care of things. And especially a song that is meant to be celebratory. You're, you're taken in the harvest. You're done. And it starts with, who saw the fences falling? So that uh, sets the tone right there. And there are other lines in the song that also allude to things not being quite all right. We have, of course, who heard the winter calling, which, uh, again, winter, uh, we know what that stands for. Very often used allegory for depression and doubt. Uh, and indeed, we have how many thoughts were doubted, cementing that even further. And much later in the song, who saw the future wasting? And we have butter melting and altars crack. Instead of celebrating the end of the harvest, we are contemplating why things may be falling apart. And there's depression, there's doubt. It's not a solid bedding to build a future on. So in terms of the line, just as you sow, you shall reap. Hard work pays off. If you slack, you have less to reap. Sometimes it may not be about slacking. There may be circumstances where you are prevented from achieving the level of sowing that will allow you to reap what you should have been able to. External circumstances beyond your control. And there are some things later in the song that go a bit in that. But before I get ahead of myself, let's, uh, let's go back again to after the fence is falling. Because as we see, the song isn't exclusively about things falling apart. There are contrasts in the song. Uh, we have a line, who broke the plowman's bread, which again enforces the, the farming thing. The plowman is the, the guy, as the name indicates, who plows the fields. I don't know about plowman's bread, but I heard the phrase plowman's lunch, which is actually a light meal of cheese, pickled onions, or just pickled with a bread roll, especially one served in a pub at lunchtime. And then who heard the winter calling and who wore the tailor thread? The tailor's thread is interesting. To afford tailor-made clothes, you had to be wealthy. So in this first verse, we now have both the farmer and the landlord. We have both of them. They're both there. And this continues in the second verse, where you have how many sheaves were counted, how did the carriage shine? That's the carriage of the landlord again, uh, or a person of some wealth. How many thoughts were doubted? How did the landlord dine? Did he break? Plowman's bread, or was it more fancy? So many interesting things here. And I think um, these are meant as examples of things that describe a total situation. You have the people on the field. You have situations that are not going well. You have people of wealth. Uh, yet the song doesn't really tell us what it means, means to tell us. It sets something up. And then we have the just as you sow, you shall reap. And the first time around, they don't uh, add the in a harvest home. They just sing, just as you show, you shall reap twice, and then you get an instrumental bridge, and then we get into the second verse. the Mayday feasting, who saw the harvest home. This is the first mention of harvest home in the song as part of a verse. And I mentioned this before that a lot of titles on the crossing do not necessarily come from the choruses. 
they come from a line in the verses. And that always intrigued me greatly as I got into this album. But there were no other bands that did it this way. But of course, for this song, the phrase Harvest Home is used in a chorus setting, although how the chorus works is worth looking at in itself. But the first version, it did not appear. Then it was just a verse line. And as, as we discussed before, uh, maybe the Home on Fire, My Wife Has Fled, was sung instead of that. But then later the Harvest Home was added, maybe after they decided on that as a title for the song or to illustrate something else. So, who left the future wasting? Who watched the family go? I think, um, not to go line by line through it all, but uh, we read on for the next verse. See where the bowels are empty, see where the arms reach, see where the butter melted, see where the altars creak. This sums up a larger point that all these lines... They continue the narrative of the first verse, of things not being properly tended to, mixed with things that do go better. Who left the future wasting? Who watched the family go? It asks the question, who's to blame for what's happening? Why are the bells empty? And melted butter, I, I guess it's bad. I don't know, <laughs> good or bad. Uh, and creaking altar implies that the religious symbols are not used or well tended to either, or the collapse is both spiritual and materialistic. Um, and then we go into the second course, just as you show, you shall reap. And it adds here, in a harvest home for the first time. The first mention of harvest home in a chorus setting. The fact that he says, in a harvest home, is interesting. I'll actually get back to that in a little bit. Then we have an instrumental break and the third verse. This is where we're looking back. This is the what happened to. Where were the days of promise? Where were the gifts divine? Where were the heroes honest? Where was the summer vine? And uh, it continues also into a more interesting verse. The verse we're talking about now actually refers to the story of King Canute and the tide. Watch how the waves must chatter. Watch how the shore divides. Watch how the nets will tatter. Watch Canute and his bride. I just have to say as a Norseman, to say Canute is an abomination that the real name, the real Norse name that that is based on is Knut. And this is little important to me because my grandfather's name is Knut. Hmm. And he was the grandfather whose fields I work on listening <laughs> to Harvest Home. Oh, wow. And so here I'm talking about this song, having to take his bastardized version of his name in my mouth. But sure, <laughs> it, the real name is Knut, but I will say Knut just because. Knut the Great, he was a Viking king. He lived from about 995 to 1035. So he lived to be 40 years old. I guess that was average or even old back then. Wow. Uh, I guess we would be ancient. Yes. If we lived to be that age. We would be, we would be oracles, yes. Yeah, the, the old wise men, the elders of the tribe. But uh, Canute was a Viking king, and he was the only man ever to have been king of England, Norway, and Denmark at the same time. And in addition to those countries, he was also king of part of Sweden and overlord of some German areas, Schleswig and Paramia. He had treaties with Holy Roman emperors, Henry II and Conrad II, and good relations with the Pope at the time. So um, I think that was a huge base of his power. He kept the church happy, and he kept them happy with many gifts. And the song refers to Canute and his bride. 
he actually had two wives. The first was called uh, Alfingu, and she was the queen in the Norselands. He also had a queen in England, the old cheeky bastard. Her name was Emma of Normandy, but she was after the wedding christened Alfegu. <laughs> so the same name for both of them, I guess that's practical. <laughs> she was kept in the south with an estate in Exeter. She was the one who was referred to as his bride in England. So I guess she is the one in the song. But both wives bore sons who would later become kings of England. Going back to the verse, the verse we're talking about now refers to the story of King Knut and the tide. And this is an anecdote illustrating the humility of King Knut. And what this plays on is his extreme popularity. He was extremely popular. He struck mighty alliances and he achieved things that few rulers had achieved before him for the good of the country. Like he got rid of the road tax that the Romans had put in place years before. So uh, he did a lot of good things in the community. And like I mentioned, extremely popular with the church. He was God-fearing and respectful. And he was so successful. Some people started seeing him almost as a saintly being, like he had divine powers or that nothing was beneath him and that he might even have powers befitting of God's representative on earth. So in the story that this song refers to, Canute despaired a little at this. He, he would uh, say, no, you are wrong. <laughs> this is not the case. But people started disbelieving him. He actually had powers. So he wanted to demonstrate to his flattering courtiers that he had no control over the elements, especially the example picked the incoming tide. So uh, he sat his throne by the sea and commanded that the incoming tide should halt, should not come in so it wouldn't wet his feet and robes. But of course, the tide rose as usual. and It dashed over his feet and legs and uh, without respect to his royal person. So uh, he leapt backwards and said, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth and sea obeys by eternal laws. And he then hung his gold crown on a crucifix and never wore it again to honor God, the almighty king. So he was actually trying to show a bit of humility. It showed that uh, the only one with power was, was God. And uh, later historians would repeat this story and largely adjust it to emphasize more clearly that Canute was very aware that the tides would not obey him and staging the scene to rebuke the flattery of his courtiers. But despite this, the tale has often been misunderstood. And ironically, there have been many examples where Canute's actions are seen as arrogance, that he was actually trying to stop the tide, misrepresenting Canute as someone who believed that he had supernatural powers, when the original story, in fact, relates the opposite. So going back to the song, watch how the waves must chatter, watch how the shore divides, watch how the nets will tatter, watch Canute and his bride. It, it plays into this with the waves and the shore and, uh, and everything. So it's a little obscure reference. And uh, the natural question after all this is, why does Canute get a name check in the Harvest Home song? And I think um, it's, um, when you think about it, for one thing, it continues to serve as a throwback to a certain time that the song could be from. It's uh, an old farming song from a certain time, at least in dressing. It's dressed up as that. But it also serves as a reminder that some things are inevitable. And no matter how much we may want to stop certain things from happening or change certain things, some things are beyond us to stop or unchangeable. And that takes me back to the first line in the song, who saw the fences falling, and the discussion that uh, 
I had at that point to the song about external circumstances preventing you from sowing enough to reap what you had the potential to. Uh, if you look at King Canute, he understood what he could and couldn't do. I see the message of this song in the same light to some extent. Work hard, but make sure that you're able to reap enough from your efforts. And in that regard, we're no longer talking about farming specifically, although the song is sung in a farming tradition. I see it really as about every walk of life, every profession. There could be fences falling. There could be an uneven division of sheaves. Maybe you need to be sure that you are in a situation where this is optimal to you and to those you take care of. So when the chorus says, just as you sow, you shall reap in the harvest home. That's any home where the harvesting happens. You know, sow as you reap in the harvest home. Whether it's going to work, whether it's getting your paycheck or anything else you do, make sure that you sow as you reap in the harvest home. And we should keep in mind the themes that he would explore on the next album, Steel Town. We need to keep an eye on that too. These themes were emerging even at this time. Uh, on that album, he describes several scenarios where people have a hard time making ends meet. This could really be an early song about that, using farming terminology rather than writing about the steel mill. And writing it to seem like it's coming from the old British tradition of harvesting songs, which is really a beautiful approach to uh, to it. But that's uh, that's really the crux of the song to me as I look closer at it. And that also makes this song an example of something that would be deeper explored and more directly explored, really, on Steel Town. If you look at how these lyrics fit with the music, the music is upbeat and celebratory. And um, the lyrics do have that kind of, there are things going on, like the fences falling. <laughs> but uh, you don't necessarily stop because you just, you're just infected by the whole music. And the music is, is really infectious. Uh, looking back at the demo, or the early versions, the early versions of this song had use of keyboards, which is a skids left over that was still used here and there, especially for all the early demos. You still would hear them do that skids-type uh, keyboard used here and there on the Crossing Era demos, at least. But it would go away, and it would uh, not be very prominent on final album versions of any songs. The chorus of the song is uh, is uh, interesting. I mean, this album doesn't really have a whole lot of traditional choruses. Some songs do, but others don't. And this has, um, <laughs> I don't know where to, to put it. After the first verse, you have two, just as you show, you shall reaps. Then you have the guitar section. And that guitar section almost becomes the chorus or something to hang on. Because just those two lines, just as you so you shall read, is not a chorus. No one can tell me that's a chorus. It, um, it, it, it has helped a little bit the second time round when they add In a Harvest Home after it a couple of times. Then, then you start getting sort of the whiff of a chorus here. But again, there's a solo section after that without a guitar solo, just a guitar melodic section. And that almost again feels like a more 
hefty uh, bits to, uh, to end the verse on. After the third verse, you have two just as you saw usual reaps again, and in a harvest home, then, and then a guitar section with even more guitar, which is really the playout section or the, the barnstorm section from the demo that I wish they had retained. So um, the development of that ending is interesting, the, the Barnstormer. I talked about it a little bit before, so I'm not going to talk much about it, but uh, I wish they had retained it from the Chris Thomas arrangement. The end of the song, the hoedown, it's very prominent in the Chris Thomas version, and that is that is just so fitting. also fit in with the whole British farming tradition, dancing, celebrating the, the end of the harvest kind of thing. You, you would almost hear something like that. You get into it, they play it very jauntily, like a dance, and indeed they danced on stage when they played that. What they did do in the Chris Thomas thing was overdo it slightly. They overdid that tone down. In the middle of the song, when uh, where you have a musical passage on the album version, they actually have the same hoedown rhythm on the Chris Thomas version. So you have it twice. Once is enough. They should have dropped the mid and kept the end. Uh, unfortunately, for the Lillibite version, they dropped both of them. And that would, was dropping one too many. So, uh, yeah, they were known for not having guitar solos back in the day. They were known for not wanting to bend notes. They played melodic pieces on guitar that are lovely, fits the song perfectly. But there is one moment on this album where they play a classic old-style guitar solo. And that is in Harvest Home. And if you blink, you miss it, because it's just a second. But it's right in the middle of the song as to get into the midsection. Let's mention the music video. We have two versions of the music video. We spoke about those in the music video episode, which is years ago at this point, and everybody forgot it. It's a charming video. They uh, definitely go out on a picnic with a lot of raw produce that is uneatable, like uncooked corn and raw potatoes. I don't know how they could have much of a picnic with that. I think they also had bread. But uh, they later went over to that hydraulic power plant, which is located in Wapping in London. And some time ago, actually, Irvin Emery shared some photos on it on our Facebook group. He visited that location, found a place where they recorded that music video. He couldn't get inside it, but he could see the green turbines featured in the video through the windows. So that was kind of cool. And he posted those pictures. Hmm. 
So, yeah, so that's probably enough from me about Harvest Home. It's uh, it's still a song I feel extremely fond about. It's probably one of the songs I am most nostalgic about for the reasons I talked about. Uh, it doesn't rank as high as it did when it was probably my first uh, number one after I listened to the entire album a couple of times. And it's still high, but it's not that high. But it's definitely in the top half. Nice. Very nice. Oh, that was great. Great. Uh insight onto onto a lot of that and as you've covered most of the things that i would have covered um what what i a couple things that you didn't mention that i'll mention that i think are interesting uh lyrically just talking about lyrically what i see and you you talked about how with the fences falling and then followed by who broke the plowman's bread what I, what i'm hearing there and seeing there is almost a precursor to the call and response type of thing in where the rose is sown, which I think is really interesting, at least for the couple first couple verses, it's like because when he sings "Who saw the fences falling," and then says "Who broke the plowman's bread," there's a there's a harmony part going along that second line. It almost sounds like a voice is answering the first voice, and it, it always reminds me of the call and response thing in where the rose is sown. And it fits a call and response thing as well because, as you pointed out, we've got this mention, back and forth mention of the common working man and the rich landlord man. So, I mean, it's it's very much a, a song in my eyes about class divisions and, and a lot of the same things that he will sing about on Steeltown especially, but – uh, th- throughout his career, you know the the blue collar working working man and how that person is taken advantage of by the wealthy man. What's interesting about this song as the lyrics progress is that you see things that are that are important to the people, and then it's it's immediately followed by a verse of someone just spending their time feasting, or their carriage is shining, or as you said, they're the, someone's wearing the tailor's thread. Like who heard the winter calling? That's that's a that's a portent of of doom, a, a portent of uh, you know something bad coming, and then it's followed immediately by who wore the tailor's thread. You know, you, you get the feeling that this person wearing the tailor's thread isn't concerned whatsoever with the coming winter. Um, and and here again, how many sheaves were counted? They're counting the sheaves of corn for their harvest, and it's important to count those sheaves of corn because it's important to know how much food they will have to last them through the period where they're, they're where they will need it the most and then that's immediately followed by oh how did the carriage shine you know so it seems like these completely uh diametrically opposed lines which i think are, are just brilliant you know and, and it really calls out the, the differing viewpoints of these two groups of people and 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 again you know how many thoughts were doubted by the same people who were working so hard and then how did the landlord dine at the same time these thoughts were being doubted doubted he's not worried about these things he's not worried about your your petty concerns he's worried about the food that he's going to eat and so when you when you take that into consideration that the just as you sow you shall reap line is uh there's almost like a an angriness possibly there you know like a like a I don't know, like almost a revenge type thing in some in some respects, like uh, you'll get yours, you know, the, the the landlord will get his or 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 something along those lines. It's kind of how I've always taken it. Um, I also see some some references to things that Stuart will write about later on 
even in the Seer period where he's talking about that album was such a, a big deal to him as far as, you know, still embracing the tradition of of your past, but but not being bound to it. He talked about that a lot with I Lead On and other songs, you know, have a forward looking tradition rather than one that keeps you restrained in the past. And I see that a lot in the latter verses of the this song, too, where he, where he talks about who led the May Day feasting, who saw the harvest home, who left the future wasting, who watched the families go. And then he continues to say, the bowls are empty. See where the arms reach. See where the butter melted. See where the altars creak. And no longer are you getting that call and response type of thing by the ends of these, by the last couple of verses. You're getting one voice. And he seems to be saying here, you know, look, all these traditions are great, but you know, the May Day feasting, the Harvest Home, these traditional things that have lasted for so long. But but look what's happening. You know, the future is wasting despite these traditions. The families are being split up. They're being forced to move and leave. Um, the bowls are empty, even at this time of the Harvest Home. The arms are reaching is showing that they're suggesting that people are looking for more. They're, they're wanting more. They're needing more. And the butter the butter melted. And the, the line that I really like is... Um, see where the altars creak almost when you say something's creaking it almost gives the impression that it's old that it's that it's wearing out that it's um you know it's it's becoming in a state of disrepair you you could almost take that as a comment on you know possibly religion and religious tradition maybe and and how in his view and i'm you know i'm just guessing here or i'm just making my own interpretation i don't know if he's thought this or not but when i see where the altars creak i get the sense of Someone saying, well, maybe this religious tradition that's been a part of all this that we've had for so long is is outdated and we need to think more forward looking and, and think about where this sits in and uh, how we're going to craft a future. And then it becomes even more prominent at the end, which which you attributed to the Canute story, which was very interesting. You know, where were these days of promise? Where were the heroes honest? Where was the summer wine? A lot of the things that were promised by the Harvest Home. And the celebration of of the harvest, and uh, you know, giving thanks to God, and having hoping that He will bless you in the days ahead when you need the fruits of the harvest. According to these last verses, a lot of these things never came to pass, and uh, you know, a lot of things are not happening the way that they wanted them to happen. A lot of the the things that the harvest home tradition would say should happen have not happened. You know, they don't have these gifts divine. They don't have the summer wine, the days of promise. So. It, it's it's a tough song because it's not like a lot of these songs. There's a lot of abstract imagery. There there is a lot of um, there are a lot of lines that it certainly are not direct and in your face as Stewart would once you know would later I should say um, try to write in, in that style more a little bit more direct style. But this is why I love his early lyrics so much because there is so much room for interpretation and yet you do get a good sense when you really bear down and look into them you do get a good sense and a good feel for the overall theme that he's talking about and and what he's saying so the only other thing i'll say lyrically which i think is interesting about canute um you know yeah i had no idea who this was when i first heard it in fact i'll i'll be honest maybe to my embarrassment i didn't know who it was until probably you know a number of years ago where i finally started thinking hearing that song so much and I thought now who is this Canute person or you know I I just took his pronunciation as being <laughs> the right way so I would say who is this Canute Canute person what what is what did he do what is this guy <laughs> and uh 
you know, so I I found out a little bit about him, and I knew he's a he was the uh, the king of of these different countries, as you mentioned. And um, but in in preparing for this, I, I delved more deeper, more deeply into him. And you you covered pretty much everything that I would, except for one one thing that I think could have also merited his inclusion in this song, and that is one of the things that he did with his new wife. Um, Emma. Now, I, I should say, I don't know that for sure. I don't know if she actually came with him, but I think she might have. He came to Scotland at some point. It, I think it was like in 1031 or something like that, or in, in the early 1000s, whatever you would call those. He came to Scotland, and he, while he was there, he received the submission of three of the Scottish kings at the time. Um, I'm far from an expert on how you know Scottish Scottish history and why they would have three kings. I'm sure it has something to do with I guess the clan system or something, you know, some, someone will, will correct me on, on our page, I'm sure. But apparently he came to Scotland and received the submission of three Scottish kings. And one of his, uh, one of the people who would write sort of like his poet, I guess you could say, the king's poet who would write verse about the things that he accomplished, um, wrote something, uh, and I don't have the actual text with me, but he wrote something as making it seem as if the, the kings that had, submitted to him had actually given their heads to him which which was a metaphor but it just shows that okay here's here's these scottish here are these scottish kings giving their allegiance to what was then the king of england as well as other countries so you know stuart being such a student of history even at that young age i got to think that might have had something to do with it as well as far as him mentioning him you know, because he did come there and he got this. It was just another another example of Scotland submitting to England, Scotland submitting itself to a foreign king. So, you know, maybe there's some reason or maybe that's part of the reason as well that he brought him into that equation as well as the, the old story about him and the tide. But, uh, yeah, I mean, musically, uh, you covered a lot of that really well, too. It's it's got a it's got a very jig kind of feel is what i wrote down it, it it's it's got that feeling of a of a community dancing and and you know like you might see in a movie where at a harvest festival where the whole community is out and they're all dancing and they're all really getting into it and it grows and grows and they're dancing with other people and all spinning around just got that great joyous feeling and yet as is, is the case in so many of of his songs you know, there are a lot of dark overtones here, especially when you get to those last verses. And what's ironic is that when they play this song live, and, and this is, you know, in the past when they played this song live, especially um, I'm thinking of the Seer performance, uh, live in New York performance of this song, which is one that means a lot to me because that was the the first, like, big country concert that I had uh, in its entirety that I could watch. And I remember when watching them play Harvest Home and how they just exploded at the end of that song. And, you know, you were talking about that, just running back and forth from one side of the stage to the other. And it's just such a great, joyous moment.
But when you look at that and compare it with the last lyrics of the song, the final lyrics of the song is pretty, it's pretty uh, dour. It's pretty depressing. So, um, you know, that's, that's typical Stuart Adamson and that's what we've come to know and love about him. But it's, it's really interesting that dichotomy of this joyous expression from the sound. And and if you're watching the, the song being performed live from the visual and then what really isn't so joyous lyrically, it's very, very interesting. Um, but there, there's just so much great playing on this song musically. Uh, Tony's bass especially is doing all kinds of wonderful little runs throughout the song. Um, the the drums are great throughout. The, the, the guitars have wonderful little harmonies and these great little, uh, little, little fast guitar riffs. For example, right before that bridge section comes in where everything is brought down, Stuart does this great little run up the neck that he used to do live as well, which I, I love. It's so cool. This great little run. And then he does another little one in that bridge section where he's like, uh, it's just a really quick little blast of his guitar. It's classic big country. You know, it's, it's great. In that breakdown section, too, if you listen to that in headphones and really pay attention to what's going on there, there's some great production in that, just in that little section. And I think it's one of those really great examples, again, of, of Steve Lillywhite and, and what he was able to bring to the table. Um, you hear not just the guitars, not just the bass and drums, but you hear these little percussive things happening, like uh, what almost sounds like sandpaper being rubbed together at times, and also these little chimes. Kind of like the chimes that I that you that I think were used on the song uh, "Made in Heaven," you, these little little chimes that sort of accentuate different moments in the song. So there's all kinds of little that little part they really spent a lot of time on just building that, and a lot of this stuff is subtle, but it really sounds great. And also that outro that that Tony mentioned when he was recounting uh, this song, uh, I really like that a lot too. Even though I I, I get what you're saying about you know, the uh, the barnstorming effect of the Chris Thomas uh, version. I do like the outro of this just because of the really odd stuff that Mark starts doing. It almost sounds like he's playing in a different time signature at times, but he's not. It's still the same music that's going in the same time signature, but he's playing. he plays these weird little uh, accents on the drums, and Tony kind of joins along with him. And you, you can really tell it like they're having a lot of fun there. I don't know if that was... I always wonder if that was planned or if that was just something they did, uh, you know, on the fly. I don't know, but um, it's cool. It's a cool way to bring the song to a close. So yeah, I mean, this is a this is a classic big country song. This is one of those songs that, again, on the on the surface people would say this is a fun you know happy anthemic song and it and it certainly conjures those feelings but when, once you bore down to it more deeply uh you realize it's a lot of the same stuff that Stuart has been writing uh, and you know just with these dark overtones that sort of in this case they sort of build from more of a 
happy, but something's not quite right here feeling to completely uh, that something's really wrong here at the end. <laughs> so it's it's always really interesting to me to, to see those songs from him and, uh, you know, just that really interesting dichotomy of, of emotions. But um, the last thing I'll say is is that line, our home's on fire, my wife has fled from the original version. Yeah, go back and listen to that version on the on the crossing box set because when I heard that it's 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 not a good quality recording by any stretch, but I really do hear him saying those lines and those lines always kind of reminded me of um something out of the storm really in a way. Like our ho- the houses were burning, our homes on fire. So it's almost like uh you know, and my wife has fled. It, it, you know, maybe there was some thought about the same sort of subject matter of the storm when he was writing this. I don't know, but uh it's certainly an interesting line that was not written by accident, obviously. So I, I wish we could ask. I wish we could ask him today. Why did you write that line, and why was that taken out? What was your thought process behind it? Because there certainly must have been one. But um, anyway, it's it's an interesting song. Interesting to see how it developed from that original demo with Bruce and Stewart, and a lot of the things were kept, and a lot of things were changed as well. But. Um, I do think that the version on the crossing that we finally got is the superior version to all of them. Yes, it is, no doubt. Excellent. All right, so uh, Harvest Home, where do you rank it? I rank it at number four. Oh, wow. Very nice. Well, here come the groans. I rank it at number nine. And I still like the song quite a bit. It's a great song. (laughs) No, you hate it. You hate the song. (laughs) Yeah, you're not alone. So while I get up my document with the public vote info that I haven't looked at for two months, you can prepare for the karate bark. Okay, well, you know, the karate bark, um, I've got some sad news to report. Yeah? And I meant to say this in the beginning. Uh, He's escaped. I don't know if he's going to return, but our break was so long that I completely left his cage unmanned for a couple of weeks. I did not feed him. I did not even check on him. And when I returned... I did find that the bars had been broken and <laughs> one of the windows in my man cave leading outside was also shattered. And there was a trail of slime that oozed out into the forest near where I live. So, so our, our, I'm, I, I have a search for him at the moment and I'm hoping he can be brought back into captivity before this is done. But for now, I would just have to say that uh, I'll have to do his job for him and the Karate Bark countdown for Harvest Home was nil incredible none so uh (laughs) 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 yeah okay so that takes us to the public ranking it's uh, been a while now since we asked our dear listeners to rank all the songs on the crossing from one to ten we had 80 people giving us rankings uh, we are not amongst them. We keep <laughs> our votes outside. But we have, um, after counting the votes, Harvest Home came in at number 10. Wow. That was the one that got the most low rankings. Now, it got one person voting it at number one. It had 20 people voting it at number 10. Wow. So quite a lot. 20. That's that's a fourth. One fourth. You're right. I was not alone. No, um, one-fourth is worse than you at number 10. But uh, an average score of uh, 7.06 if you add all of it together, which is the lowest average of all. I can tell you that number 9, which was 1,000 stars, which you already talked about, 
had an average of 6.5. So that's a half a point of difference in average score. And that is a significant difference. That's a, that's a huge difference, really. So Harvest Home, last with a bullet. <laughs> or should I say last with an anchor? Last with a heat-seeking missile. Yeah, something like that. Pointing downwards, drilling into the ground. Yeah, so Harvest Home... It's, uh, it's not a song that is well thought of. I, I guess I'm one of the few that keep it in relatively high regard. And I say this knowing that most of the people who actually put it at 10 or even 9 as yourself do not actually hate the song. Yeah, and I feel like we always have to repeat that over and over again. But uh, yeah, 9 nine on here is still, I mean, 10, ten all, what I have is 10 is a great song. So, you know, yeah, take it for what you will. Exactly. Hi, Great Divide Nation. This is Arlen from Annapolis. Uh, at this stage of the deep dive, there's really probably nothing left to say that hasn't already been said or covered in depth. So just a couple of personal observations. For me, uh, with The Crossing, for now and forever, this is the greatest debut album of all time. Uh, it's still amazing the way it pops out of the speakers when you, when you listen to it. It's the first album that I bought in every format available and in every cover color available. Um, I think over the years I've probably bought 40 copies of this album and um, given them out as presents to uh, friends and girlfriends. And, you know, I don't think I've ever actually successfully converted someone over to Big Country uh, from The Crossing. But nonetheless, I'm just glad that all of that music is out there in the world. Uh, One thing that hit me is, you know, when you listen to the the demos, you know, the John Brandt and Chris Thomas mixes, what you hear in those songs is... Um, gems that haven't been set yet. They haven't been cut and faceted. And it really took the Lily White production to spur the performances and the recording out of the band that we have now come to love. And I do wonder sometimes if those original mixes had been the ones released, would we have ever uncovered the big country that we all came to fall in love with? I don't know. You know, nowadays in the record industry, um, a band might not even get a shot at a second album if the first one doesn't hit. And so I do wonder sometimes what would have become of Big Country if those first mixes had been released instead of the versions we all love. But anyway, we all know and love this album, and just thanks for listening. Thanks. Lost Patrol. Wow, this is an interesting song. Very interesting song. Um, first of all, when I try to look at song interpretations for Big Country, the first thing you want to do is go to the man himself, the man who wrote the song, the man who wrote the lyrics of the song at least, and that's Stuart Adamson. But for a lot of these songs, and uh, you know, Stuart doesn't say a whole lot. Um, in fact, he never said a whole lot about interpreting his songs. I think he never really enjoyed doing that. He certainly didn't want to 
to give you exactly what was on his mind when he wrote a song. Very rarely did he do that. And once again, we find that in Lost Patrol. We, we hardly find any comments from Stewart uh, regarding Lost Patrol, but we do find one that I think is, is really interesting and maybe enough to at least form some sort of interpretation of what's going on. First of all, there was a Lost Patrol movie, I think a, a couple of them. There, there, was, there was one in 1934 that was again directed by John Ford, who I, I believe directed um, The Big Country. Uh, and these other movies, and I think maybe Giant too, I'm not sure. But you know, we know that Stewart has taken titles from movies in the past, especially these kind of big sweeping movies. Um, so it's certainly not a stretch to think that maybe he took this title uh, from this movie. Now, when I look, at, look back on this movie, it's about a, a British Army patrol that's ambushed while they're in the Mesopotamian desert. I have not seen the movie. I, I, I was going to watch it, but the more I read about the plot, the more I thought, well, it doesn't really fit with this song. It, it Maybe some, on some level, but it's basically about a, a patrol, and they get stuck in a certain place, and they're just picked off one by one by this German sniper. So, you know, there's certainly very potentially a military aspect to this song and the lyrics, and we'll get into that, but I don't think it's necessarily taken from that movie other than possibly the title. But here's what Stewart said about the song. Uh, one thing that we know that he said, and I'll, I'll talk about something that he may have said uh, in a minute. But um, in Smash Hits in 1983, Stewart talks about this song, and he says, Straight Adventure, a Foreign Legion story. That's it. Straight Adventure, a Foreign Legion story. So that fits perfectly with the whole Boyzone type of approach to this album and a lot of these songs. Um, now, the Foreign Legion was something that I was always aware of as a kid because I loved these little toys, these little soldiers that I would collect made by a company called Airfix. And they were HO scale soldiers. I don't know exactly what that means even to this day, but they were tiny little soldiers and they would come in boxes and you could get like uh, all kinds of different groups of soldiers. You could get the Australian soldiers, you get the, the Nazis, the, the British commandos, you know, they were very specific. And one of the boxes I remember very distinctly was the French foreign legion. And, um, I loved those, you know, and then they had these big hats that they would wear and, you know, back in the day, uh, but basically, the, make, to not delve too too deeply into this, but uh, the French Foreign Legion is a group of, of soldiers um, who are not French nationals, who would come from all, all over, and they would fight under the French banner in what's called their, the Foreign Legion, and they would, they would be part of a variety of campaigns over the decades. I think it started in, like, somewhere in the mid-1800s, and um, a lot of the people who fought in the Foreign Legion were people who wanted to start a new life, often who wanted to, to have a new identity, who maybe had problems in their their regular life and they, they were desperate and they would join the French Foreign Legion because it would offer them pay, it would offer them possibly adventure, and it would offer them a new life. And uh, many people fought for the French Foreign Legion and there were lots of campaigns in foreign lands as well, like in Africa, especially Algeria, all these places that that maybe are a part of this song that we're dealing with. Now, there's one other thing that it's purported that Stewart said about this song. And maybe you know, Svein, maybe you found some evidence of this. I, I have not found any evidence of it. But someone on the old big country message board, or maybe it was the mailing list, I don't know. Mailing list. It was the mailing list, okay. I've got their quote right in front of me. Um, but this, this woman says, Stewart said in some ancient interview that it was about the British 
Read London fashion industry and its attempts to invade the music industry or something like that. <laughs> so, you know, she, I, and I remember people had talked about that. You know, Stewart is, is about the fashion fashion industry. And someone said, just a few other thoughts to add to Stewart's quip that Lost Patrol is about the fashion industry. Often artists tend to stretch the truth when discussing their work, especially the what is this about question. Someone wrote that. And that's what that's where I lean when it comes to that whole thing. In fact, I'm not going to even talk about that as a possible reference in this song. And maybe Svein can talk about it if he wants to. I, I personally don't even know if Stewart said it, but if he did say it, um, I, I have to think that he was joking when he said that this song is about the, the British fashion industry. Uh, because there's absolutely nothing in this song that... That makes me think that's the case, and you know he—he's certainly one to make a joke and try to deflect those types of questions. So, I'm just going to acknowledge that that is out there in, in case anyone else has heard it. But I personally don't think that it's anything that that really truly applies to this song. You know, maybe someone can convince me otherwise, but uh, but I'm not sure. But um, you know, we we got some other people who used to try to interpret this song, and I'm looking at uh, that great. Touch the Vision fan page that used to be up where that would that would capture all these uh, comments about the song. But some of the comments that people write really let let it be clear that this is a tough song to, to decipher. Um, the great Oliver Hunter, though, had an awesome interpretation of this song. He wrote, Lost Patrol is easy. It's about a patrol that's lost. So, you know, that that what more needs to be said? Um, others said it's about a message of community culture and emotion that is brutally taken as a joke by our society and laughed at. It is about four people who put too much into most every song they ever wrote and none but the very observant and special listeners noticed. noticed. Um, so someone was here was writing that they thought the song was about Big Country themselves being a lost patrol. But that's an interesting, interesting take, but I don't think Big Country would have been that jaded about their career that early on in the game. And, uh, you know, especially if the song was written even before, you know, Big Country came about. So so this song is difficult to decipher. I've, I do have an interpretation of it that I think works on, on a lot of levels. Um, but at the outset, let me just say, this is just my interpretation. And uh, I could be totally off base. We have no way to find that out anymore, unfortunately. And even if we did, I don't know if Stuart would ever let us know. But um, let's just say that I think this is a... A really, really interesting song lyrically. Um, maybe one of the maybe one of the most interesting ones lyrically. And I'm just going to come out and say from the beginning that I think this song is a ghost story. I really feel like this song is about ghosts, um, and that the people who are singing the song and the protagonists of the song are in fact ghosts. That's what I believe, um, and that's how I take the song. Again, just my interpretation. Some may not agree. Now, my, my biggest question is, what are these ghosts? And I personally have two possibilities, and that is they are either soldiers, which is what I lean toward, mainly because of Stuart himself talking about the Foreign Legion and mentioning them. So I lean more, t I, I take what he said there as, as uh, important, you know. Uh, so I do lean toward this being something about soldiers, a Foreign Legion type story, and possibly them fighting in Africa. I don't know why Africa, but this this whole song just gives me that feeling of Africa. And there were a lot of pretty famous Foreign Legion campaigns that were fought in Africa. So that's that's what I'm thinking. The other possibility is that which I think is the is the more interesting one from a bizarre perspective 
even though I do think it's a little bit of a stretch, but I'll talk about it, is that it's perhaps missionaries, the ghosts of missionaries who are singing this song. And, um, you know, we know that the song talks about missionaries, so it's a possibility. But anyway, I think the song is about ghosts. And one other connection that I'll – and I'll talk about those connections and why I think that. But one thing that I think is very interesting is that, uh, you know, this song starts with the yay, 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 oh, chant. And um, it's sort of like Harvest Home. It's a very strangely arranged song. When I say strangely arranged, I mean from the from the standpoint of a typical rock and roll song, especially something that you would be looking for, quote unquote, commercial appeal from. You know, you would typically go for the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus type of thing. And this song is so strange. I mean, this it's only got two verses for one thing. And the first verse comes in pretty late into the song. And the second verse doesn't even come into the song until like three and a half minutes into the song, which is crazy. Um which to me is great because it makes the song even more interesting. But, it, you know, and the song was never released as a single, so there's no idea that they wanted it to be a single. But, you know, certainly not a commercial arrangement. And that's the, that's the case for a lot of the songs on this album. But a little bit jumping ahead of myself here. There is a song that was written in 1948 um, called Ghost Riders in the Sky. Very classic American Western song. It was first done by Burl Ives, believe it or not. And I always knew the Johnny Cash version because Johnny Cash did a very famous version of this song. Um, and when I was doing some research, I was surprised to hear that Burl Ives was the, the guy who first sang it. And when I listened to his version, I was really touched by how haunting um, the chorus is that he sang of this song. And guess what lines are in the chorus? Uh, Yippee-yay-yay, yippee-yay-yo, ghost riders in the sky. I don't think it's that's a total coincidence, but let me just play a little bit of the Burl Ives version of this song. An old cowpoke went riding out one dark and windy day. Upon a ridge he rested as he went along his way. When all at once a mighty herd of red-eyed cows he saw a plowing through the ragged skies and up a cloudy draw. So the song starts with that. Yay, 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 oh. And Ghost Riders in the Sky, yippee, yay, yay, yippee, yay, oh. I think that's really interesting and a really interesting connection that I don't think is necessarily a coincidence. But let, let's go through the lyrics and see, and I'll try to make this interpretation of my fit, and you can see if you think it's, you know, worthwhile or not. First of all, I think the lyrics of this song, especially the opening lines, are just unbelievably great poetry. I mean, poetry of a quality that you just do not get in rock music uh, or most any kind of popular music. I mean, this may be some of the best lyric writing on the album, really, especially the, the opening of this song. We lay the night in anguish, 
snakes drawn out by the tide, which is so cool. The compass of decision falls always on one side. Already we get a sense, not necessarily of ghosts yet, but we get a sense of a group of people, obviously, in we, and they're spending a, a difficult night. They're in anguish, in fact. It's not just a, a, a night where they're nervous. Anguish is the word that's used. So there's something really serious going on here. The snakes drawn out by the tide. The tide, some, you know, re- referencing an ocean, which would also reference these people being in a foreign place, a place that's not their home. The snakes being drawn out by the tide, having a, a sinister type of reference to it. Here's the really interesting line, well, of many actually, but the compass of decision falls always on one side. So these people are in anguish at nighttime, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And every time they try to figure out what their next move should be to get out of this situation that's put them in anguish, only one option seems to present itself. Every time they try to think of their options, only one seems to present itself as the one that they should do or can do. And what is that? What is that decision that they have to make? What is that option? I think we'll see a little bit of that down the, down the road in these lyrics. This is when I start to think about the ghost thing. But many went before us, and still the cries are clear. There is no beauty here, just the stench of wine and beer. But many went before us. So there are many of their kind who have been here before. And what I think is interesting is the line, still the cries are clear. Whatever happened to these people who came before them has either just recently happened, or the way I look at it is that, you know, other soldiers, and we'll talk about the soldier, I'll I'll just use the soldier uh, characterization here for now, because that's what I, as I said, that's what I lean toward. So many soldiers had been on this beach before or come here before and faced whatever these guys are facing, presumably some sort of attack, some sort of, um, you know, violence from whoever is on this beach, on this shore, and they were killed here. But the fact that their cries are still clear makes me think, again, of this idea of ghosts who have, ghosts of others who have died here, and they're still there, and they're haunting this area where they were, where they were killed. That's kind of kind of how I take this whole idea of the lost patrol, that they are ghosts. They are haunting this area where they died, and they are one of many, a small group of a bigger part of many others who have been here before. You could take that to mean like the cycle of war continuing, or you can take it to mean more specifically this particular campaign that they're involved in. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that, but I, I look at this as being the ghosts of their fellow comrades who have been cut down before them are are there and they're all now in the same boat. So this other line, there is no beauty here, just the stench of wine and beer. That's a difficult line there too. But if we're looking at this from a ghost perspective, I take this to mean that these entities, maybe maybe they have a feeling that they've been killed. Maybe they have a feeling that they've died. But instead of the afterlife that they might have been expecting, which would have had beauty involved in it, they they find themselves back where they were back where they were when they were alive and they're in this area where they're forced to you know kind of wander these these places where they were once killed and there's no beauty here this isn't the afterlife that we thought we would find there's just the stench of wine and beer and later we'll see there's just death and dark decay so you know this the wine and beer who knows what that could be it could be maybe camps of of other soldiers who who are at a point where they're turning to these things to keep them going. 
Um, there's a sense of bleakness about it, a sense of, uh, you know, hopelessness about, you know, the, there being a stench of wine and beer about. So that's how I interpret this. You know, they, they, these, these entities that are talking have died and uh, they're, they're back where they began or where they, where they, you know, were initially killed and they're, they're haunting these shores. And we see that a lot in ghost stories, you know, and we see that also in that song that I referenced earlier, ghost riders in the sky of, of these ghosts who have to, who are, after they die, they're sort of condemned to do the same thing over and over again. In fact, let me just read a couple lyrics from the song ghost riders in the sky. It's, it's basically about a, a cowboy who goes out one night and he sees these, these devil, uh, these devil cows basically riding across the sky and he sees these cowboys who are following them and chasing them. And the cowboys are also ghosts and the cowboys have been condemned to forever chase this herd. And in the song, they're called the devil's herd. They're condemned to forever chase them, never catching them, just chasing them forever. And the lines are their faces gaunt, their eyes were blurred, their shirts all soaked with sweat. He's riding hard to catch that herd, but he ain't caught him yet. Because they've got to ride forever on that range up in the sky, on horses snorting fire as they ride on, hear their cry. Yippee-yay, yippee-yay-yo, ghost riders in the sky. As the riders loped on by him, he heard one call his name. If you want to save your soul from hell, or riding on our range, then cowboy, change your ways today, or with us you will ride, trying to catch the devil's herd across these endless skies. Yippee-yay, yippee-yay-yo. So, those are the lines of that, that great old song, and that's that's kind of how I, I feel with the lines of this song. Um, except the interesting thing about this one is that this is from the perspective of the actual entities, the, the ghosts who are possibly forever condemned, or at least until they can figure out how to get out of this to just keep wandering these places where they were, where they were killed, these, these places of battle, you know, but we don't have a lot to work with in this song because as, as I said, there are only two verses really in this song. Uh, they're not a lot of lyrics, but and we don't get that second verse until well into the this song. But actually, before I get to that, I, I skip what I guess would be called the chorus. And this is another one of those interesting songs, too, that, that you mentioned on some of these albums uh, or on this album. Some of the songs on this album have titles that are not reflected within the lyrics of the song. Nowhere in this song are the words Lost Patrol. And so that's that's interesting there as well. But the chorus, we save no souls, we break no promises. How does that fit with the whole ghost mentality and the ghost interpretation that I've that I'm kind of putting together here? I don't know completely. I'll be honest. It's it's difficult, but it's certainly a great line, isn't it? I mean, that's that's a great line to sort of sing, especially live, and shake your fist at, and feel like you're a part of a of a communal group. Um, you know, we save no souls, we break no promises. It almost is like a Pogues type of line. It reminds me of a song that they did uh, called "Boys from the County Hell," and they were talking about just this group of rabble rousers who were coming, and they, you know, you better watch out when they come because they're they're from hell. And uh, we don't necessarily get that sense from the people who are singing this song or reciting these lyrics because they seem more confused and terrified and, and upset. But they also have a sense of menace about them. And I think that's what we get in this line. Whatever these people are doing, they're not here to save any souls. 
and we get a sense that missionaries have been to this place before. They're not here to break any promises, probably because they're not here to make any promises. So what are they here to do? Uh, we don't know. But there's a sense that their purpose is menacing um, as they come, and we get that in the next verse. And the second verse finally comes. So that next verse, I think, gives you the answer to what the composite decision was, this one decision that always presented itself. And this also fits in with my whole ghost analogy. We can do nothing more than move headlong through the gloom. The thorn between our lips is the missionary's tune. First of all, we can do nothing more than move headlong through the gloom. I think that's, that's this composite decision. What can we do? All we can do is move. We can, all we can do is move through this gloom. And if you're looking at this from a ghost perspective, again, we've, we've seen countless stories over the years of ghost stories where, where ghosts are condemned to haunt a certain area. They're, they're sort of stuck in limbo or in this area, and the only thing they can do is remain in this area and move around in it. And they're confused. They want to get out of it, but they don't know how to do it. And in various stories, you know, someone might find a way to set them free. We don't see that in this song in the lyrics here. So all they can do is move, move headlong through the gloom, the gloom that's around them. That, that might be the way they see things, the, you know, this perspective where they can see the actual world, but they also see a part of the, the other world that they're in. They're in this limbo area between the real world and this spirit world. And the word gloom would sort of uh, go with that, I think. But this line, the thorn between our lips is the missionary's tomb, just another incredible line it's just so it's so good and, and another difficult line really but you know there are ways you can interpret this first of all what thorn between our lips what would that suggest that would suggest that something that they are saying something that these people are saying is inflicting pain now is it inflicting pain on them or is it inflicting pain on others uh, that's so that's you know totally open to interpretation i feel like What's, what's an interesting way to look at it is that maybe these people, while they're condemned, these ghosts, while they're condemned to, to haunt these areas where they had been killed in this place that they had invaded or this, that they were part of their campaign, you know, maybe, maybe this pack of ghosts <laughs> is, is singing some song that, uh, that the missionaries sang or some song related to their, to their religious beliefs that they carried with them. And, they're aware of the fact that, and again, this is this is a big stretch on my part, okay, and I admit this, this is just my, you know, just getting a little carried away here, but it's an interesting way to look at it. The, maybe while they're being forced to haunt these areas, they're also forced to sing these songs, and while they're, they, can, they can think certain things, they are aware of the fact that they're singing these songs, and the songs that they have been singing related to religious beliefs that they are now realizing are not bearing fruit these songs are hurting them. They're causing them even more mental, mental issues. As we saw in the beginning, they're, they're in anguish. And wouldn't it be interesting and, and awful <laughs> to think of these, these ghosts haunting this area and they're, they're, while, while they're haunting it, they're singing some old uh, Christian tune and at the same time realizing that they are not in heaven, 
that they are not in any sort of afterlife. They are not in a place of beauty. And it's almost like they're being tortured this way. You know, so that's just an interesting way to look at it. But it's it's another way that makes me think that they might be in Africa or some some similar continent or area because missionaries have been here before and missionaries have come. Now, you could also look at this line as like maybe the thorn between our lips and the idea of missionaries tune, maybe that represents their language. Maybe maybe tune is being used as a metaphor for their language of English or French or whatever it is they're speaking. And maybe you could look at it as the thorn is a thorn to the people who are the natives of this place, and they hear the sounds coming from these people, and they don't like it. They know that these people mean them harm because of their language, because it's the language of maybe the missionaries who came before them, um, who they didn't enjoy meeting with. I don't know, many different ways to interpret this, but however you want to look at it, it's, it's a really beautiful poetic line. And then we get this interesting line that makes you think of, of these ghosts or entities being seen by mortal men. You have men with open arms turn their faces half away. Observe as we approach, we have not come to save. So what a great image this conveys. Men with open arms, you get the feeling that maybe natives, and again, this, this makes me feel like this is being ghosts, some natives see these ghosts and they're they're holding their arms open as if to to say you know i recognize what you are please don't hurt me you know please 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 pass by me and that would suggest the fact that their faces are turned half away it's like they can't bear to look on this vision that they're seeing they can't bear to look at this at these ghosts that are following by but they they know that they're there and they know that the ghosts know that they're there so they're holding their arms open as if to say, you know, please, you know, don't hurt us. Pass us by, but they can't bear to look at them. And the ghosts in turn are saying, observe as we approach. We have not come to save. We have not come to save you. So who knows what their intentions are, but it certainly sounds menacing. And this is the other line. This this last line is is the line where I really think it's driven home that these could very well be ghosts. We stand as thick as vines, though the fruit is torn away. There is no beauty here, friends, just death and dark decay. We stand as thick as vines makes me think of a large number of these people, these entities, as I'm considering them. As, as thick as vines, I mean, that gives you the sense that this is more than just a patrol. I mean, a, a patrol is a, a relatively small group of soldiers. And yet these people now are standing as thick as vines. To me, that refers back to the many that came before, and still their cries are clear. Uh, These people, or these entities from the first verse, have now joined with with the cries that were so clear, and the ghosts of the others who had come before them. And now they're as thick as vines. There are many of them, but the fruit is torn away. There's no fruit. And that, to me, symbolizes there's no life. There's no life in these entities. There's no life in these creatures, whatever they are, these ghosts that are haunting. There, there are many of them. They're as thick as vines, but they're just sort of, you know, moving slowly through through the gloom, as they put it. Um, they're wandering, and and there's no beauty here, friends. Just death and dark decay. And it's almost like they're finally coming to the realization that, guess what? We're, we we died and we're not in heaven. There's no there's no beauty here. There's no afterlife here that we were thinking we would find. There's just more death and more dark decay. And then you get, we save no souls, we beg no promises over and over again. So, you know, to me, this is just a really cool ghost story. And I mentioned the the missionary thing, too. It would be interesting, I always thought to, well, not always, but just when I really started to research this, because I'd never thought about this song so deeply as I have over the, you know, <laughs> the last 
few months thinking about it. But, you know, if you do want to look at it as missionaries, wouldn't that be an interesting way to write the song? These missionaries came to this place to try to convert the natives. The missionaries were, in fact, killed. And instead of making good on the promise of them having eternal life, the missionaries now find themselves as ghosts forced to haunt this area that they came to save. And now they are realizing the futility of what they were trying to do. (laughs) And they, they themselves are ghosts. It's just an interesting way to look at it. But, you know, as I say, I lean more towards Stuart's interpretation of this being a group of soldiers. But now, you know, if you do look at the, the title Lost Patrol, you can take that to, to mean all kinds of different things. You could look at it as at face value, a patrol that is lost, as the great Oliver Hunter said, a group of soldiers that have come out, they're lost, they can't find their way back. You could look at it, if we're looking at it as ghosts, you can look at it as they are literally spiritually lost. You know, often when people talk about ghosts and ghost stories, you'll talk about them as being lost you know they these are the lost they're they're in limbo they don't know where to go they they're not in heaven they're not in hell they're not on earth they're wandering this area they're the lost patrol and if you look at it from a missionary perspective you could think of they are the lost patrol in that they are searching for the lost <laughs> those who are not saved they are their their purpose as missionaries is to search for the lost hence they are the lost patrol um, so there are some really interesting ways you can look at it if you want to just go nuts. Now, there's one other lyric in this song, and many of you may not be aware of it. Many of you may, but it's a lyric that is only sung live, and this is in the last verse. In fact, I remember reading this years ago, and it came to me when we started to talk about this song, and uh, I sort of hinted to Svein about it, and I said I'd reveal it when we talked about it. So here it is. Danny Kay figures into this song. The great Danny Kay, the entertainer Danny Kay. Apparently, it was an inside joke with the band. When they would sing this song live, Stewart would sing, There is no beauty here, friends, just death and Danny Kay. <laughs> he would sing that line, and the band would laugh at it, and the people wouldn't really notice it at all. And I remember reading the band talking about that. I think it was maybe in an old country club. And uh, when I started thinking about it again, I was thinking, Did I dream that? Is that real? Did they really sing Death and Danny Kay? And I emailed Bruce about it to confirm. And he's like, yep, we sure did. You Stuart would sing live. He would sing, there is no beauty here, friends, just death and Danny Kay and make everyone laugh. And if you go back, uh, and it's not hard to find, listen to the version of Lost Patrol on Without the Aid of a Safety Net. And it's pretty much on all the versions they, they did, especially in the later years. I don't think they did it so much when they first you know, were playing the song in 83, 84, and that time. But, but as, they, as the years wore on a little bit, they started to do it more. And it's on without the aid of a safety net. In fact, we'll play it here. So now that you know that what's going to be said, now you know the connection of Danny Kay to the song Lost Patrol. Okay, so that's basically uh, the lyrics, and and one other quick thing to mention about it, you know, when I was, I forgot to mention this when I was talking about going back to Stuart, there was one other comment that he made about this song, and that was in the recently released uh, commentary for Without the Aid of a Safety Net, since I just mentioned that, this is a good place to mention it, 
uh, that Andy Inkster kindly released not too long ago, where where the band members were talking about each song that they played on that uh, album. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, great, maybe he's finally going to talk about what Lost Patrol means. And he got to Lost Patrol and he basically said, I don't even remember what that song was about. So, (laughs) so, yeah, thank you, Stuart. I have a hard time believing that, by the way. I mean, how how do you not remember what a song is about that you wrote, you know, not that when he said that, you know, just over 10 years prior? I I remember songs that I were about, what songs were about that I wrote 25 (laughs) years ago, you know, so. I don't know. But hey, I, I think it's just coming back to Stuart never feeling comfortable explaining to people what a song is about. So, you know, there's my interpretation. Take it for what it's worth. Uh, but let's get to the music. Um, musically, I think the song really fits with a with a ghostly interpretation because it's really a ghostly sounding song. I mean, it's when you when you hear the way the song fades up with um, that Ebo fading up and it sounds like something is coming from a distance. It always reminds me of something coming over the horizon, and they're very tiny at first, and it's maybe a haze that you're seeing with, like, the heat, the haze of the, haze of the heat rising, sh- sort of shrouding their image, but they're getting larger and larger as they're getting closer. And that, that's kind of, kind of how I take the uh, opening of that song musically. And you've got that great Ebo that's, that's rising up from nothing, and then you've got those great... Um, Echoey guitar parts from Bruce, which are so cool. And you know, once again, to get back to that Ghost Riders in the Sky song, this song, as others I've talked about, it's got a sort of an old west feel to it to me. I mean, it's got that that whole gigantic landscape feel to it. It's got that you know old western cowboy, dark cowboy song type of groove to it and drive to it and interestingly enough it's also got like strange um you know almost i don't know how to describe it but other types of melodies too that don't really fit more more middle eastern type of melodies i guess you could say so it crosses all boundaries the song musically it's it's pretty amazing um i'm not going to talk too much about the demo yeah i'll let's fine talk more about that um Basically, I don't think there are huge differences in the demo presentation of this song. Um, we've got a couple demos of this, and, and they're very similar. I think the, the main difference in the demo is that musically, the, the parts that are played on Ebo on the crossing are more typically played normally on guitar, you know, on the demo versions, um, which is how they, they played it live as well. They really didn't play those parts with Ebo live. Uh, in fact... I could be wrong, but I don't know if they ever played this song live with an Ebo. Uh, that would be interesting to find out. I'm not sure. But they did for, not. Okay. That's good to know. For some reason, they did it on the album. And since they didn't do it after the album or prior to the album, I have to assume that this was Steve Lillywhite's doing, that he thought, guys, you got that Ebo that you've been playing, you got to bring that into this song. And on some level, I think it works better in that it does provide more of an ethereal feel to the song. But on some levels, too, I like the demo approach better, um, because only because I think it, it's got a harder, um, heavier sound to it. And maybe that's not what this sound needs, but I will say that this song musically never really hit me that hard on this album, even though I could recognize that it's that it's interesting, it's unique, and there are things about it that are great. It never really got to me emotionally as much as maybe I, you know, 
wanted it to, or or maybe seems like I might have thought about it, considering how I just described the lyrics. But when I saw the band perform this live on the Buffalo Skinners tour, that really made me feel this song in a different light, because and you hear the same version on "Without the Aid of a Safety Net." It was so heavy. I mean, it was just it was just a big, you know, distorted guitars and heavy, crunchy guitars. But yeah, they still kept the ethereal qualities of it as well in a lot of respects. So I can certainly see arguments being made for the crossing version is the best. I, I would totally get that because in a lot of respects, I think the music on the crossing uh, fits the lyrics better. And that argument will be made soon. Yeah, okay. I expected that that as much. Um, so I can definitely get that. But for me, just from a completely emotional musical perspective, I always like the live version better because it... It just hit me harder. It hit me more like a like a ton of bricks, where I d- I didn't feel that as much on the album version. Um, but you know this this song has a lot of those great big country clean guitar stylings in this uh, in this tune. You know, using a lot of echo, using a lot of digital delay, a lot of reverb, a lot of uh, evo evo throughout this. Um, and there really are not any distorted guitars on this song. There aren't really any. Um, heavy power chords on this song, and that that I think is an interesting change and 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 in a way a welcome change at this point in the album because it's showing a whole different side of the band um, that we really haven't seen as much of yet. And I always personally love the way that they play the clean sounds because they do that so uniquely as well as they do the distorted you know more bagpipey stuff. They 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 have such interesting ways of playing um, when they're playing clean electric sounds as well. Um, one really cool thing that I, I think they do on here on Ebo that I don't think they've done on any other song, it, when, the, when the first verse kicks in, you hear this you hear this really deep, almost tribal sound, and it's like... It almost sounds like whale songs, like a, you know, like a whale sound that, you, that you're familiar with. I mean, again, if, you, if you're going to think of this set in Africa, it's got that kind of tribal sound to it. And I never knew what that was. I thought maybe it was literally um, a tribal instrument. But talking to Bruce, he, he said that that was done by the Ebo and that he actually plays that part. Uh, apparently what he would do was hold the Ebo up on the, the upper strings of the guitar, the thick strings, the low strings. And he would hold it there for a moment and then take it off and then hold it get it to start humming and then take it off and it would give that sound like and what what a cool you know what a cool idea that was whatever idea that was that that was fantastic Um, yeah it really adds so much to just that whole interesting feel to the song again something that wasn't duplicated live but uh on this on this track uh it really fits very well so the one thing i'll say about this in general musically and i meant to say this about some of the other songs we've already talked about but this song is as good a place as any to, to say it because this is something that you get a lot on this album, and it's this really bizarre arrangement. Um, so many songs on this album are so uh, instrumentally based, and they have so many long sections of instrumentals. We're going to get it on the next song uh, as well, Close Action. We got it on Harvest Home. We get it on A Thousand Stars. Um, and it's like they'll, they'll do a verse. They might do a chorus, they might not, but then they'll launch into just this very, very long 
instrumental break. And often that same break will be repeated again later in the song with a few different flourishes in it. And it's really a unique way to arrange a song. As I mean, it's, it's not the traditional way to arrange a song. It's a very different way to arrange the song. And for me, that the, the way they did that on Lost Patrol took away from the song a little bit for me because, as I said, you don't even get the second verse until the song is almost four minutes in gone, you know, like three, I think it's like three thirty-eight or something like that. Um, which is when most songs are ending and you're getting a second verse when most songs, you know, most traditional commercial songs are ending. Now there's a lot to be said for that. It's, it's totally cool. It's, it's a very unique approach. Um, and it's makes for the, you know, something that's very interesting and it's clear that they're not playing by traditional ground rules. And I love that. But for some reason, on this, on the album version of this song, that instrumental break is just a little too much for me. It's, it just goes on a little bit too long. And then when the lyrics do come back, you're back to the yay, yay, yay part again, um, yay, 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 oh part again. And then the final verse kicks in and they go back into the chorus one more time and then repeat it again. And they just kind of end it quickly on this major key, um, which I always thought was kind of an interesting way to end the song and not, not necessarily the way I would feel the song to end although it totally works but you know if i'm looking at this song as as a more a dark type of ghost story type of song it's just kind of strange to end it on a major key the way it does i almost expect it to end on something more dark but um anyway it it, it gets the job done and it certainly gets the song cut down a little bit more when you consider all the instrumental sections that have been in there prior to that um the instrumental sections are great and i mean don't get me wrong the guitar parts especially are so cool and so unique especially the rhythm parts uh that Stewart is playing like you know and again it's got that western feel like it's got a bonanza feel almost and it's it's so cool that what he's playing there it's it's so Stuart Adamson and so traditionally Stuart Adamson and what we all love from him and um you know I I have always loved his rhythm playing and the things that he would do on the rhythm guitar just as much, maybe even a little more than than his lead playing, which is, you know, people know him by those great lead lines and those bagpipe-sounding lead lines, but I've always been just captivated by the way he plays rhythm guitar as well, um, which is always really interesting and difficult, you know, at least for me as, as a guitar player. A lot of it's really difficult to figure out, to play, and he does that here on Lost Patrol. Um I just feel like even though it's it's great music and it's got that great scope of like crossing vast distances and you feel like you're on this big journey, I almost feel like I need something visual to go along with it um, more so than just what's being conjured in my mind. Just listening to it on the crossing version, I just feel like that the, the instrumental section that comes in is so long that it, I don't know, it, it takes a little bit away from the song for me, even though I... St- you know, I'll keep saying this for all of them that I might criticize a bit is still great. And I recognize it as being great. It just, I almost wish there was, there was more story content on, on some level. So yeah, another thing about the music that, that really I found interesting was in Tony's bass playing. And, you know, you hear that a lot with when you're talking about these songs, especially on the the first few albums um, where he's just really gone nuts on the bass. But what's interesting about this song that I'm surprised really didn't hit me until recently is uh Tony is playing, his bass is great on this song as usual, but he's playing eighth notes throughout almost the entire song. And 
that really struck me recently listening to this again. And it's it's very, very interesting approach, um, a very interesting approach to take on the bass. And what what it does is it really adds a sense of uh, nervousness, I think, to the song. It, it adds to that sense of menace. So, like throughout the entire song, he's playing dun 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 Just real staccato-y eighth notes on the bass. And uh, I I think that's a really cool approach. Um, And whether he, you know, did that on purpose to create that sense of dread in the song, who can say? But uh, it it is accomplished either way. And it's kind of interesting that uh, if you go back to the early demos made by just uh, Stuart and Bruce, they put that line in on the keyboard. So that probably was a very nice repetitive line to begin with. Oh yeah, that's right. So it, partly it may come from that, but also uh, Tony adds a sort of sense of urgency to the way he plays it. So it becomes uh, sort of he takes it a step further, even from such a basic loop. Yeah, so I love that line. Yeah, me too. And it, it really does get to you subconsciously as the song progresses with that constant, you know, staccato eighth note thing happening. Exactly. Uh, the song needs that sense of urgency because that's what that uh, music is all about. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I'll say about the song musically is um, I think this is a really good example of, of the way how good the band sounds when they're all playing together. Now, obviously, we don't I don't think they were all playing together when they recorded everything here. But the the cool thing about this song and a couple songs on the album don't have this for me. And one that we haven't really got to yet is it really feels like the band is playing live at the time. It's it really even though I much prefer the live version of this song. So that's sort of contradicting what I said earlier. Um, for other reasons, more for the instrumentation of the live version. But drum-wise, bass-wise, guitar-wise, I really do love the overall feel of this song. It's got a very live sort of feel, especially with Mark's drumming. Um, and again, there's there's one song where that really wasn't the case, and I think the song suffers for it um, in hindsight, for me anyway. But uh, on this one, I really I really like the live feel of the of all the music combined. And uh, but yeah, I mean, this is. A haunting song, perhaps, is the best way to describe it. Um, and if you're looking at it as ghosts, it's even more so. I think the music is ghostly. The music is ethereal. It's it's like no other song, really, on this album, which is also very cool. Uh, it's become one of those big country standards, big country classics uh, that they play at mo- during most of their tours, certainly now. And you know, it was cool when they brought it back during the Buffalo Skinners era. And I, I, as I said, that those versions to me really struck home with me, especially the way they would end the song. Another one of those, I, another one of those situations where the crowd would do the two, three, four. I think it works better in this song because it's it's it fits a little bit more um, because of that chorus uh, and just the whole yay 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 part uh, tends to go more with the two, three, four call and response. 
but I loved how they would do that live on the Buffalo Skinners tour where they would let the crowd sing it. They would end and you would think they were done and that the crowd was just going to sing at home and then they were going to just disappear off the stage. But then they would launch back into it again. And I remember seeing that live and I saw that live before I heard without the aid of a safety net. And I was so shocked that they started playing it again and not just playing it again, but Mark just starts wailing on the double kick drum. And I'll never forget being in that relatively small room, the Bayou and pretty, pretty midsize club, I guess. And it was the best sounding concert I've ever heard. I mean, the, the sound mixing was just so spot on. And when they kicked into that, end of Lost Patrol, those double bass parts were just pummeling you. I mean, it was just going right through you. And the guitar parts, it was just, yeah, what a great way to end that song. Nice. So yeah, the the live the live version is, is my favorite, but uh, still, tons of great stuff to talk about on the Crossing version. So why didn't you bring your big-ass camera on that show in 93? <laughs> yeah, I should have, right? Should have brought I, don't, I don't think I had it then. I don't think I had it because it, it actually was borrowed from a friend of mine um, who was doing wedding videos at the time. And uh, I don't think he was doing that back then. But I did, I did try to record the show. I brought in a tape recorder, and I recorded the show, and it was, it was so loud that <laughs> when I brought it back and started to play it, you couldn't make anything out. It was just totally distorted. Yeah. I was I was so upset because I the first thing I wanted to do when we got in the car was try to play it and see how it came out and um you couldn't make anything out at all unless he was like speaking between songs. Oh well. Yes. So and that's basically all I've got. That's all. You're spent. That's it. All right. Lost patrol. So uh, I have a lot of the same background to the song that you do. So uh, I'm not going to repeat everything. Uh, the two movies are very interesting. You, you mentioned a, lo a lot of those. One of the key plot points of these movies, of course, is that uh, this patrol in the World War One setting is uh, ambushed by unseen bandits. And the first one who is sniped from a distance is their map reader, the, the guy who navigates. Mm. So, so with him out... Then you have the added context of now they don't know where they should go. So hence they become lost. And uh, they generally decide to just try to travel northwards, but they don't really know exactly where to go. So there's the tenseness of that in addition to the unseen assailants. That is a very uneasy feel. And uh, yeah, I can see that that sense of uh, unease sort of being a similar thing to the, the song. But but like yourself, I think Stuart might have taken the title. He might have seen the movie. It might have been a starting point. And he did mention the sort of foreign legion type aspect that uh, can tie into those type of settings. So I think that is uh, a natural thing to mention. But one thing you didn't mention, I found out about another Lost Patrol. Let me read what I have. In December 1910... Northwest Mounted Police Inspector Francis Joseph Fitzgerald led three men on the annual winter patrol from Fort McPherson to Dawson City. They became lost on the trail and subsequently died of exposure and starvation. When they failed to arrive in Dawson City as expected, Corporal Dempster and two constables were sent out on a rescue patrol in March 1911. Dempster and his men found the bodies of Fitzgerald's patrol on the 22nd of March 1911. A magazine article described the event as four men from the Lost Patrol were found by Corporal Jack Dempster of the Northwestern Mounted Police in Alaska. The Dempster Highway was later named after him. This is a text from a newspaper at the time that mm -hmm. I read that verbatim. 
So what this article did not elaborate on is really on the um, the naming of the quote-unquote lost patrol. It doesn't elaborate on it, which implies that this is a well-known story or a well-known tag, that they, they found the lost patrol. So it was as if no further elaboration was needed, at least at the time. So So that was also something referred to as the lost patrol. And that Yet again, we have these, uh, not necessarily foreign legion thing that Stuart mentioned in the smash hits, but uh, as far as boys own and exploration and wilderness and, and danger, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, and four, and four men too. That's interesting. There's only four left. Yeah, that's very yeah, exactly. interesting. Yeah, so huh. there's, a, there's a lot of backdrop. Who knows if this played into it? But uh, that's, uh, these are the lost patrols of the world that are known as just that. We have the two movies, and we have this one incident in Alaska, I guess. So um, then we come closer to the source with Stuart's explanation. I have basically the same thing you did. We have the smash hits uh, quote, which is straight adventure, foreign legion story. I have the references to the fashion industry that you read out. I have thought more about this, and I think I remember more about it, which I will talk about. I think it's... uh, it's not a wrong memory, but it's an incomplete memory that was shared when it was about the fashion industry. I think the biggest thing of these things we have, I go back to the smash hits one. We actually have quite a few smash hits quotes from Stuart when it comes to songs from The Crossing. And what is unique about the um, Lost Patrol one is that is really the only quote we have. We only have the smash hits one. You can take a song like Fields of Fire. We have a smash hits one there too. I'll talk more about that when we get to that song, obviously. But he told Smash Hits that uh, the song wasn't intended to tell a coherent story. He told them it's a selection of images, thoughts on a train journey. And that's a quote that big country fans know well. We have said that many times, and that's what it is. The selection of images, thoughts on a train journey. We know more, of course, but that quote has become part of the gospel that we swear by when we analyze that song. Mm. But I think the interesting thing is, We also have quotes from Melody Maker. We also have quotes from Rolling Stone and many other articles where we have much more detailed info. And then we have the smash hits type magazines with their readership consisting of teens and very young music fans. And he would always give them the soundbite, the the quick comment, the not very deep one. And that's suitable for those who buy magazines for posters of Morton Harkett. They would get things like thought on a train journey or foreign legion story. So as a consequence, I don't really put much credence into these light quotes, into the smash hit types uh, backgrounds. I I don't dismiss them, but you don't really get into the complexities of what the song truly is about. It's not the time or the place for that when he speaks to smash hits. So the reason why I mentioned Fields of Fire, that's a good example because we have both. We have the smash hits, the lightweight quote, and we have the deeper comments from other sources which uh, do not necessarily match. But for Lost Patrol, we, ha- we only have really the smash hits. He never spoke about it. And you mentioned that, we, I think it's funny. It's, it's also sad, but I think it's funny when he did that commentary for uh, Without the Aid of a Safety Net and he couldn't remember what the song was about. What, what can you say? What can you do? It's <laughs> frustrating and it's funny at the same time. Because uh, I don't, I mean, I'll ask you this. Do you believe him? I personally don't i would say 90 percent. i do not believe him but uh at the same time i remember and i've told this story once before too i remember talking with him on the in the big country chat room and this was in like probably 99 and we were asking him about the song can you feel the winter 
Yep. And he didn't even remember that that song existed. He said, I don't I don't even remember that song at all. <laughs> so, I mean, now Lost, <laughs> Lost Patrol is obviously a much bigger song than Can You Feel the Winter. It's one that they played over and over again. So, yeah, yeah I, 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 I can't quite believe it. I feel like almost he just didn't feel like getting into it. So That's uh, what I think, too. I think he didn't want to get into it. And I think uh, that uh, tells us something. There's a setting, there's a time and a place for getting into stuff. And maybe this song is deeper than we think. Maybe there's something here that he doesn't quite feel like getting into in that context that they were in talking about the song. Yep. Now, uh, Can You Feel the Winter? I can I can give him a pass on that easier. But Lost Patrol, I, I think that's that's a little too rich for me that he doesn't remember when, when they never really stopped playing it for, for long stretches. Yeah, I agree. So... That, that's that one and uh, what we try to do in these deep dives is obviously look beyond the flair beyond the stylings and I think that's what the quote is about the uh, foreign legion it's a styling the same way that Harvest Home is given our farmer styling and the same way he wrote about the war in the storm but called it a storm it's a styling and um, and this has a certain styling too but I'll talk a little bit about the song's origins because that plays into what I think the song is a little bit about. We'll, we'll keep everything in mind. We'll keep the smash hits thing in, in mind. We'll keep what he said for the aid of a safety net actually in mind. The lyrics were written in 1981. We know that for a couple of reasons. Number one, we have the demo from that year, the town hall demo. Bruce and, uh, and uh, Stuart did this on their own along with some others that we played. This is two years before it was recorded with Steve Lillywhite. And not only that, but we also now know, and I alluded to this in the previous song, that the, the song dates from Stuart's final days with Skids rather than after he left and started working with Bruce. So how do I know that, you may ask? And that is a short story in itself, but I'll tell you. That's why you all listen. You want to hear these things, and I shall tell you. Uh, the background is, for a few years now, there's been a gathering of fans in Dunfermline in April every year. Uh, there is a group on Facebook called Big Country Dream, a musical tribute to Stuart Adamson. And uh, the organizers of that, or the owners, I should say, of that Facebook group organize a get-together every April around what would be Stuart's birthday, where fans get together in Dunfermline. They have a little mini-convention, do a local tour to take in Big Country-related sites, and uh, gather for dinner, have a fun night out, and usually live music by a Big Country tribute band. It sounds really nice, actually. Maybe one year I can attend one of these. But something that happened uh, last year, I believe, was that Stuart's brother-in-law, Jamie Davidson, attended. He was a guest of honor, and he brought some of Stuart's lyric books. People were allowed to look through them, and uh, this is obviously a huge uh, deal. You can actually look at the lyric books that he had. And he, he brought two books. One book for Skids, which he stopped using when he left the band, and he moved on to a new one for all the songs he wrote with Bruce and for Big Country for the Crossing era. And then he started a new book again, fresh for the Steel Town years. So we we gather that really from where the Skids book and, and where the Steel Town one starts. Uh, these are really interesting. People were allowed to look through the book, so they learned a lot, especially as each page, each lyric page was dated and uh, signed by Stuart, and you could see the early working versions. Some of these ended up on albums. And there's a lot of early skid songs, obviously. You can see when they were written, dating back to 76, and uh, all the way up to 81, he would write stuff for, for skids. 
and people were, I understand, allowed to look through them, but not take any pictures. But I have been told in a very definite way that Lost Patrol is part of the Skids book, written in 1981, the final days of Skids. It may have been intended for the album that uh, became Joy before it was anywhere near ending up as Joy. What I mean is a fourth Skids album that never happened. It was at least part of a new batch of songs. So the interesting thing is here, the way it's typed out, the way it's signed Stuart Adamson, 1981, and that could, of course, been that he worked with Bruce too in 1981, but he would have started a new book. It was very systematic, and that's really how it was presented as well by Jamie. So um, songs like uh, Heart and Soul was also part of uh, the Skids book, and that makes total sense. That's always sounded 100% like a Skids song musically to me. Mm. So <laughs> that's <laughs> that's definitely so. So Lost Patrol is much more interesting. That that might have been one intended uh, for, for Skids. And uh, I, I think, funnily enough, if you listen to that town hall recording that they did in May 1981, and you listen to the way Stewart sings this song, he pretty much almost speaks the verses or does it in a very low voice almost making it sound like the way Jobson would have approached those lyrics. I can totally hear Richard Jobson singing it that way. Yeah. So um, that's uh, that's very interesting. There we have sort of part of where the song comes from. So when it comes to, to Lost Patrol and those lyric sheets um, or, or those books, that's obviously how we know, or that's how I suspect all these errors in the lyric sheet in the booklet of the album comes from. They come from these books. When you compare some of them, they are the same. Yeah, I think they got that exactly right. That's a, That's amazing. Yeah. I'm so glad that the information was relayed to me because it was a huge talking point amongst fans, obviously. Yeah. But when it comes to uh, to Lost Patrol, people pay a special attention to that because that did become a big country song. And uh, the only change of lyric there, it's very minor. The, the book says, we save no souls, we make no promises, rather than we break no promises. It's not a huge change. It's actually insignificant in terms of uh, the song and how I read it in the end. But uh, yeah, little changes were definitely made between them. They were written out in these books and, and the way they ended up. But other than that, there were really no changes. And so we can talk about the song itself as we know it. And uh, I will start with the lyrics. This is obviously the big song in terms of lyrics, right? I, I see it as the one on the album where we can absolutely not be sure at all what it is about. <laughs> and uh, your take was... Certainly very interesting. Uh, ghosts is something I must honestly say I've never thought of that as a possibility. Uh, but you did make it fit. And the more interestingly, really, than, uh, than that, that is really the, the headline. And then still there is all the breakdown of all the, uh, all the words and what they can mean. Mm. So I just hope people take it in that context uh, with your explanation and also the one I will give. that uh, yeah, You might not agree with, with the ghosts. You might not agree with what I am about to say. But still, the, all the breakdown of what the individual lines may be, may, may still be valid because there's a context here that we don't know. And all we can do is give it a context and then try to break it down. So that's what we try to do. So the, the breakdown is more interesting than the, the headline, I think, to, to my mind. 
But uh, looking at it, Lost Patrol is the one song on the album where the title of the song does not show up once in the lyrics. That's actually very interesting. The title is given to paint a picture of its own, almost beyond the picture that the lyrics paint. And that might say something about really the starting point or the inspirations behind it. We have these movies. We have that story from Alaska. Um, They were called this. Maybe that is an inspiration. Maybe that points a direction for the style of the lyrics. Maybe they don't. They're clearly about a group of people that is doing something. So it fits. But it also tells us something. It tells us, if you look at the lyrics standalone, they might be on a mission. But if you look at the title of the song, you learn that... uh, it's not really a, a clear mission or they're lost. The word lost is really indicative of, let's say, the confidence in which they stride forth. It might not be as strong as, uh, as you could uh, suspect without that title. So um, looking at when the song was written, you have the skids frame of mind when it was written. The country was not yet a, a thing. You have this uh, reference to the fashion industry and you have a couple of weird foreign legion things. When I thought more about the fashion industry thing, I, I remember seeing this. I remember discussing this. But I had the distinct feeling this is only a piece of the puzzle. Someone remembered the fashion industry and retold that. And then it became all about the fashion industry. That is uh, an inaccurate representation. I think it's about more than that. I think the fashion industry is part of that. I think it's about all the hoopla around the music industry where the fashion has one part of it, the music business has one part of it. And I think this is once again Stuart reflecting on musical career, not necessarily writing about skids in so direct terms, but writing about his experience with being in a band and trying to navigate the music industry, almost making the band be a lost patrol, fighting against all these uh, powers that are trying to influence them and uh, changing them for what they are, making them feel like they're lost. I think this reflects on some of the things that made Stuart leave for home sometimes when it got too much. And uh, so that's what I think Lost Patrol Upon Reflection is about. That This is going to be my take. I see this as an angry letter because there's some anger in this song. There are some definite anger here, and I'm going to get to that specifically when we get to those points. Anger and frustration. And uh, a sense of, uh, yeah, frustration really sums it up. So um, they have this this gang of people, which can be a band. I think it could be a band. I'm not sure if it's necessarily skids, those people, but it's that setting. Thank you. 
So they lay the night in anguish, snakes thrown out by the tide. Very, very great words. Um, and uh, this is told in a foreign legion style. I, I definitely think this is dressed up to be something other than he's not going to tell straight out what it's about. He's going to put it in that setting. That's what he does so well in this, uh, this era. And the snakes turn out by the tide. I don't think we're talking about real snakes here. We're talking about the snakes of the music industry. We're talking about the people that are circling around the band, looking for their own profits, looking to change the band into something that serves their purpose better. So uh, laying the night in anguish, the feeling of the longest night or waiting for something to happen. And uh, the snakes are, are there and eventually they are coming out when, uh, <laughs> when the time is right. The compass of decision falls always on one side. That is the line for me in the song. That is um, one of the defining lines in big country lore. We, we speak about that sometimes, how some lines will, will be that. And I think this, along with lines from uh, In a Big Country, of course, obviously would be that and, uh, and some other songs. The compass, obviously, a strong symbol. Strong, strong symbol in big country fandom. But the compass of decision itself is a key phrase. I think people have different compasses by which they make their decisions. Some have a very strong moral compass. Others follow a compass of wealth, of greed and money. And uh, some have specific goals in life. They have their own personal compass that navigates them towards achieving that specific goal. And I have my compass, my own, uh, my values, people I love, things in my life that contributes to my own compass. And that will be different from other people's compass, even though basic values can be the same and will be the same for most compasses. So uh, people have very different compasses. And the compass of, for example, a drug user or someone caught in alcohol abuse, they may focus on just navigating towards the next fix or the next drink. And the compass of a criminal includes options that law-abiding people will never consider. So no matter what each and every people's uh, compass is, sometimes, even though you have a lot of choices, in reality, your compass will very clearly point you to the side where you need to go unless you totally go against the values and your goals. So if this is the story of a band caught in the throes of the worst of music industry, they are pulled in every direction. But there's, on, there's one thing they want to do, and that is to make the music as genuine as possible. That is the compass of decision falling always there, despite the pull. And that pull is illustrated as we go on. But many went before us, and still the cries are clear. There is no beauty here, just a stench of wine and beer. Yeah, many went before us. There has been <laughs> the music industry is uh, is not a new one. It's uh, always been there. We always had managers taking advantage of bands. We always had uh, record companies. We always had people around that uh, you hear the cries of band that went before. That's <laughs> it's almost a very melodramatic line to use in this context, but it fits, and it's. Um, you still see all these fates in the music industry. Some did well and some didn't do well. And uh, Stuart's views on this whole thing, if this is indeed what it's about, is neatly summarized with there is no beauty here, just a stench of wine and beer. <laughs> that's, uh, that's where it is scathing. That's where he, his anger comes. He's not really fond of all these people who try to take advantage of them. And you, you could pause for a minute and wonder if he's thinking of anyone in particular. Uh, I'm not sure that he does because these were always problems you know being pulled between uh, various things and then specifically skids were always riddled with management problems each and every album they released they had a new management and that seemed to never do what they uh, what they could have done for them if you read Jobson's book there's a lot about that in there too uh, so 
that's where we go on to the chorus where we save no souls, we break no promises. That pulls a lot of ways. We save no souls. This really could be the mantra of a band. Yeah, we're not out to change the world. We're not going to save no souls, even though that may sell themselves short because music can be very helpful to people. But in the larger scheme of things, this could be, quote unquote, just music. And that's how it's treated by the music industry anyway. No, it's a, it's an interesting take, definitely. Now, I, I'd be much more willing to uh, to consider that take now that you've put it in these terms rather than just straight fashion industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's interesting because the fashion industry, it seemed so ridiculous. And I, I remember these discussions, but I had a feeling that someone has at one point zoned in on that and forgotten the other aspects because this wasn't all there was. There was more to it. And the fashion industry is just part of it. That's um, They obviously came in, and especially as the 80s went on, we, we all know the imprints that the fashion industry left on, on the pop universe, so to speak. Right. So it went bananas in the 80s. It was all over the place. So in, in those regards, yeah, you could, you could definitely make a case for just writing about that. But I think um, if you look back at the Skids era and... Um, this is the band that came from the place of talking about justice and freedom and pain. They would write about um, that, I think, something like this to, uh, to air the frustrations. And especially, this is the last song, I believe, in the Skids book. And we know the frustrations Stuart carried around at the end of that band. I think it's a very natural song to come at that exact point. Yeah. So that makes sense to me as well. Yeah. Um, where was I? Yeah, so so the phrase, we break no promises, really means one of two things. They either break no promises because they never made any, or they break no promises because they keep their word, they keep their promise, they do not break any promises that they made. So it could almost be also, we break no promises, emphasizing the we, again, angrily pointing at those who do. So, But again, this, this is hard to, to be specific about. But uh, yeah, so we can do nothing more than move headlong into the second verse and through the gloom. Uh, that line, we can do nothing more than move headlong through the gloom. Very atmospheric. I, I love the style of this. They definitely has given it a beautiful style. If you want this to just be a, an exploration team in the jungle, it works. That's the beauty of this. You don't need to take it. Uh, and, and I think he wanted to mask this song. I think he didn't want to be explicit about this thing. And I think that goes back to the without the aid of a safety net discussion, he didn't remember. I think he uh, did. I think he didn't feel like talking about it. I think he felt he was done with those frustrations at the end of the skid stays and didn't feel like rehashing it, especially in that context. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, you know, if that is the case. And uh, yeah, and you could you could say done with the frustrations or sort of uh, absorbed them to some degree because he certainly ended up playing the game a lot, probably more than he wanted to, if you look at that early letter that he wrote. Yes. Oh, definitely. Which I'm not even sure that we have uh, acknowledged on uh, this show. I was just thinking that. I don't think we have at all. (laughs) So why don't you take a few minutes and talk about that? Yeah, so Stuart wrote a letter to Record Mirror Magazine during his time in the skids and... uh, I mean, it was fairly early in the, in the time of the skids. It was like right around the time um, "Scared to Dance" came out. So it, it was it was hardly 
the time where the skids had reached their zenith yet. And um, I guess Stewart was still ha- was having his first uh, encounters with the, the quote unquote business. And um, his responses to it were, were pretty, pretty drastic. I think most would mm. most would agree. I mean, he wrote this scathing resignation letter basically to Record Mirror saying that he was done. And um, he wasn't going to come back to the skids. In fact, uh, the cover of the the magazine or the paper really just said, like, should Stewart quit the skids or should Adamson quit the skids? So um, apparently after writing this, he just needed to get it out of his system. And in Richard Jobson's book, he talks about it and says that like a couple weeks later, he acted like he had never written it and everything was fine. And they just went about their business. But um, he does say some things that would that would uh, fit with some of this. let me let me it's a very long letter so let me try to get to some of the the things that that make the most sense um here's one thing he's talking about um with touring he said touring is the biggest pain in the arse ever traveling 100 miles to play for an hour sleep get up have breakfast travel sound check play sleep get up breakfast travel and so on ad nauseum meeting people you've never seen before paying money to watch you get it over and done with the great white hope of commercial success top of the pops going to studios the night before and waiting till the musicians union rep was securely at rest in the pub and switching backing tracks waiting around in the tv studios watching the privileged 30 or so jackie readers being herded around in front of minuscule sets waiting in turn behind show addy waddy which i think was a band to have your plucks covered up what he's talking about there is is having his acne covered up with makeup. Um, listen, and thank you, Mark Dunwillows, for, for that translation a while back. Listening to people outside the band seriously talking about how to improve your songs for vinyl with little regard for how you feel the song should sound gets depressing after a while. But that's how it has to be if you want to be a success. It's just another of the little compromises. Compromises like having good artwork rejected in favor of candy-striped carry-on characters with wide-open eyes because it's better for marketing. A quick massage of your ego. The tracks are bloody phenomenal. And the experience is painlessly completed. Won't get fooled again. I want, I want to be me and all that. You had to laugh. And um, he, he talks about record companies saying, Record companies are geared towards making money and that's all. If you want the money, grab it with both hands and good luck to you. If you're lucky... You might attain the giddy heights of critical acclaim. Artistic control is a joke. Unrestrained rock and roll exists only in the minds of hopeless romantics. Music only exists in the free meals and handouts of high-powered business executives. I don't need it. That's all. And so that's how he ended that letter. But, yeah, it's pretty amazing how deep and vicious his views were at that early stage about about the record companies and the record business. So. Yeah, that is scathing. That, that that is a rant worthy of anything we ever did. Yeah, I, I think so. That's pretty intense, and that was early, like you said. You, you'd think that over the years, you'd mellow a little bit or learn to play the game, and, and clearly he did. Yeah, but uh, he did carry these frustrations with him. The strange things wouldn't be that a song like Lost Patrol could be about it. The strange thing would be that he never wrote a song about this at all. Clearly, this was a big part of his uh, his makeup. It, it's so interesting to think of. And yeah, in, it is. in that regard, this song is really toned down compared to that letter. Just just put music to that letter and you have a punk song. <laughs> you really do. Wow. Yeah, and I, I know Jobson himself, you know, was, was a little bit taken aback by the letter. Obviously, he would be. But even, you know, from how deeply Stewart felt these things, I think even Jobson was surprised. Like, aren't we doing what we, what we set out to do? So, um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, that kind of fierce idealism that he had right in the beginning um, is is fascinating to look at. And it's almost like the very first moment that he ran into these things was the most difficult moment, as you could see from this letter. And, yes. And as his career went on, as you say, he uh, yeah. he absorbed a lot of it and, and even went along with a lot of it, which he himself later admitted. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, interesting. Very interesting take on the lyrics. And that was worth taking that detour to to get that in because I don't think we acknowledged that letter on on this show before. We have written about it on Facebook. So uh, yeah, that that would fit in here. You know, if if this song is about this, then that is definitely an interesting backdrop to to why this song came when it did a couple of years later. So I'll pick up on the, the second verse again. We can do nothing more than move headlong through the gloom. That kind of reinforces the impression that they're not exactly striding forth with confidence. They are doing what they need to do. Uh, we can do nothing more than move headlong through the gloom. <laughs> it's, it, it, it could mean that it's the right thing to do according to their quote-unquote compass of decision, but it could also mean that they have no choice. They have to do this. It's the only option. And that must be the option that, you know, if they want to continue making music, they need to compromise. They need to do these things that, uh, yeah, they can do nothing more than just proceed. The thorn between our lips is the missionary's tune. The message they have is not appreciated, or the message they are bringing is not designed to make people happy, or themselves happy even, because the song that they had might now be compromised by uh, record company wishes or others. So the, the tune they have, the thorn between their lips, there, there's something here that uh, definitely it matches the musician part of, of, of this complaint, but I, I can't understand fully what it's uh, about. I, I, I would go here more towards uh, your interpretation that the people they talk to will not likely like what they hear and uh, that might be because they had to compromise maybe they had a beautiful song that was ruined by by some producer i don't know we've all heard about these stories because they are after all not here to save any souls and never break no promises they are bearers of of songs and bearers of bad tidings or whatever so uh Men with open arms turn their faces half away. That that would fit very well into uh, the insincerity of the music industry. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the the bands are welcomed, but they're not staring eye to eye. They're, they're sort of faces half turned, like talking not up front. So that that one makes total sense in, in that regard. The, the greeting is insincere. It's a pretend greeting or a shallow greeting, and that especially when you look at the final part of this verse. Observe as we approach. We have not come to save. Again, repeating the, the the mantra of not coming to save. You know, we save no souls. We have not come to save, but observe as we approach. So they've met the people they wanted to meet. They, they've had their meetings that they had to. Going back to the thorn between our lips, the message that we are arriving with, really. We're not here to save you. We have bad news or news you will not like. Maybe we carry a song we know you will hate. So be it. So they stand as thick as vines, though the fruit is torn away. I see the fruit as their music. It's being ripped from them, taken to some uh, marketing department. It's being merchandised. And uh, what was a beautiful song is now a compromised product. So again, there is no beauty here. There was beauty to begin with, but now it's just death and dark decay, which is a dark way of viewing how it all ends. And that fits perfectly into that uh, letter that you read out. So uh, that's... uh, 
that's really how I take this song. There's no other way about it. I, I really see it in those terms. That doesn't mean that necessarily every line is super clear to, to fit on it, but it makes sense, uh, I think, in the larger scheme of things. And dressing the song up as an adventure story, following the boy's own theme, following the exploration theme, is a stroke of genius. Because that uh, makes this uh, probably a more fitting song for the album than a rant about the music industry that they have to rely on to release this music. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's really an interesting uh, sort of irony of it all. And so in, in your research, did you ever find uh, like the, the actual quotes that, these, that this came from, this fashion industry thing came from? Did you ever find those? Or I'm assuming no, since you haven't mentioned them. But No, yeah, I do not. But I think that's where it came from. And I think uh, it would have come from uh, an interview where this was a rant that he let down his guard, which he clearly didn't do a lot for the song. He kept up his guard, really, uh, from there on out. Um, that might be the one thing he said anything more than that uh, smash hits type uh, lightweight quote. Yeah. So. Uh, no, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's from memory. It's a possible take. And uh, it's how you can read the song. If anyone has any different interpretations, certainly if you're free to post about it on the group, this could be a very good discussion. Yeah, without a doubt. And it's uh, some of the, some of the lines do fit absolutely perfectly with your interpretation. Some of them are a little more difficult, but it's like you know, and the, and the same was case, the case for my own interpretation in a lot of ways too. So it's it's interesting, and it, yeah. it just we just have to get back that to the fact that a lot of these songs aren't necessarily made to be laid out but there are bits and pieces that are in there that make up the whole and um that yeah the whole the whole idea of this being something to do with the uh, music industry is is very very interesting although i will say like using some of some of the things like death and dark decay and all of that is, is going a little far for my own personal taste but uh if he's talking about the the industry but i but i understand it too at this at the same level because if stuart was writing the songs back then, which he was musically and lyrically, he's probably going to be more, um, you know, more protective of those things. But, uh, yeah. but the last thing I wanted to say is this line from Jobson about that letter and, and sort of hearkening back to what you're talking about. Um, this, this was Jobson's response at the time that letter came out. He said, I don't understand him. Simple as that. I think he's taking his criticisms of the rock business too far. He can't be that weak. So. <laughs> All right. Interesting. Yeah, backhanded. Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. No, but he had his frustrations with this, and he's open about that in the book, but uh, they always got on. You know, that was that was a volatile but honest relationship and productive and a deep friendship at the end of the day. Let's not forget that. That yeah. is very clear. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think um, the, the, the key thing to remember when it comes to, to this song, and especially my interpretation, is that this was written during the last days of skids where there were a lot of frustrations and indeed he ended up leaving that band mm -hmm. and uh we know what the album ended up sounding like so he probably didn't regret that and especially that, that letter you read out the resignation letter that is even worse than lines like death and dark decay in, in a lot of ways it's really oh, it worse is, skating yeah. so uh, yeah I, I i don't see it as a stretch i see it perhaps ending up in a song being a little um little uh, unusual in that regard, but not the fact that he would have written something like that as a, at least at one point. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's enough about the lyrics from me. I'll talk a little bit about the music. And we have an interesting thing to, to play 
as sort of an original, the glint in the milkman's eye genesis of the song, which comes from a band Bruce played in pre-Big Country. He played in a band called Eurosect, which features Alan Glenn on bass and Derek Cole on drums. And uh, recently, Alan shared a song of theirs called Blurred and Faded on YouTube. Now, I don't think this is the first version of Lost Patrol. I just think there is something in the song that's sort of the glint in the milkman's eye version. <laughs> a horrible thing to keep saying, but uh, <laughs> there, there is something about this song that it, um, it isn't hard to think of where that inspiration could be carried into a writing situation with Stuart and become Lost Patrol. So we'll play that and we'll see what you think. on guitar and vocals, Alan Glenn on bass, and Derek Hall on drums. And this is taken from their uh, sound control demo that they recorded on the 2nd of April 1981. So not very long before Bruce really got together with, uh, with Stuart. That was weeks later. Weeks later, they got together. And he would bring stuff with him. Like other bits he brought with him was uh, the music for the first part of the song that became The Crossing. That also came from this band. And the uh, We'll uh, get into that when we uh, talk about that song down the road. There's, there's more stuff from, from this Eurosect project. So thank you to Alan for letting us play that. And I think that's yeah. so interesting. Clearly the intro is uh, reminding us of uh, Lost Patrol. And I'm also hearing those eighth notes on the bass played by Alan Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. So maybe it's a little stronger than the glint in the milkman's eye. Maybe it's... Uh... Bulge in the milkman's pants. something like that but that uh, that's an interesting one and um, then we have the version of the actual song Lost Patrol which is written a month later and we have the version from Town Hall May 1981 
this is obviously the version I talked about before where Stewart's vocals are very low, almost speaking and almost uh, performed in a Richard Jobson style. Uh, that would change with subsequent versions. And in fact, we have a subsequent version not too long after that. We have the Adam Seif demo from sometime fall 1981 recorded at uh, the CBS studios. That was the actual demo session where uh, Stewart and Bruce recorded demo tapes for CBS records. And that tape contains Lost Patrol, Wake, The Crossing, and Echoes. It's also the same as the song featured on Rarities 4. So let's see how much the song had changed in just a couple of months. have a further demo version. We have the John Brandt demo, the second session they did with John Brandt at Phonogram Studios. This is in May 1982. So we're still a little bit ahead of the Chris Thomas sessions. So we actually have four different incarnations of the song that would end up being Lost Patrol before the Chris Thomas sessions. So this is the fourth one. This is the demo version on CD2 of the 30th anniversary deluxe edition. So most people will have this one. That is the John Brandt demo from May 1982. Still the cries of fear 
And then we have the fifth version. This is the Chris Thomas mix. They recorded it for the scrapped album. And uh, finally, it was revealed as well on CD2 of the 30th anniversary deluxe edition. This is the mix, the alternate mix, marked as previously unreleased. That is actually the, the Chris Thomas mix. that we have some other versions recorded with the Steve Lillewhite as run-through versions which gets uh, much closer to the album version and at this point we have pretty much the version as we know it with one crucial difference and you touched on this this song has never been performed with the Ebo intro on the album in any other version of the song including any of the demo versions any of the run-through versions and any of the subsequent live versions we have one version with the Ebo intro, and that is the album version. So that is um, that is actually a little surprising to think about. That you know, one thing is that not even the demos had Ebo, none of them, uh, but that they scrapped it immediately when they went out and played live. And you'd think, uh, could it be because it's difficult? But they would do this for other songs, and they had some songs with really quick changes between Ebo and guitar, which caused almost problems with some songs. I remember we talked about some of them before without me necessarily remembering them, the titles now, but uh, they went away from the Ebo very quickly. So this definitely feels like Lily White made him do it. He made him play the Ebo on the album version. The band didn't like it, and that is why they never played it again that way. So it's, it's more than a bit peculiar, especially since I love that part so much. It's really the poster child of how big countries should play Ebo and how they should feature Ebo on their songs. I just love that Ebo intro. It's brooding with capital B and capital every other word in that letter. Brooding, very atmospheric. You mentioned something about an unseen feeling of an ease uh, that definitely fits it. The whole something is coming, something's about to happen. That's uh, that's the musical feel of this song, and uh, I really, really wish they had kept it. I think this uh, this use of Ebo is where Big Country shines. When just like the intro to uh, the storm, which also they uh, didn't really keep playing the Ebo part too. So they uh, they uh, they went away from some of these suggestions. That you gotta assume Lily White perhaps pushed them to use more Ebo than would be natural. But uh, yeah, so for this song. Lovely intro, and uh, just like yourself, that lovely guitar with the delayed echo over the Ebo that Bruce plays, it's just 
lovely and so sharp. If you even cut away the Evo and just feature that guitar, that would have been a striking intro in its own right. I just love that part as well. But then you add them together and it's just magic. That's just fantastic. Such a mighty, mighty intro. Makes it sound like nothing else. And it sounded like no one else. And that's why as I played this album back in 1983, it kept playing it over and over again. Nothing else sounded like Big Country. And that was part of really why I kept two of them. Because I've, I've said this before, they were the odd one out in my record collection. I was a metalhead. I never listened to Big Country for the rock out moments because I had plenty of those elsewhere. I listened to them for the magic. And the intro to Lost Patrol is magic. Or the, the extravagant, the otherworldly, and the epic. And um, this contributes heavily to that. So uh, that's that. I do want to touch on one thing, and that is the the double instrumental middle part after the first verse and chorus. First, they play a completely satisfying melodic guitar breakdown for 30 seconds. Then they move on to the next part of the song, which is another Evo section with more echoing guitar. Very lovely. And this starts a whole other instrumental break, which becomes very different to the first one. It feels great, and it lasts about 45 seconds. And then they do another song intro with more Ebo and a chance, lasting a further 30 seconds. The musical break, and you mentioned this too, but you didn't break it down. The musical break between the first and second verse is one minute, 45 seconds. And then they come back for the final verse and chorus, just yeah. singing the chorus twice and that ends the song. Yeah. So the song ends up being very middle heavy. And I say that not in a negative way. It's not a problem. It's just very unusual. And again, unusual isn't bad in big country. It is a bit of a problem for me. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, I got that. No, I, I've never really thought about it. You know, if anything, what, what I have a problem with or what I would do is not necessarily change that, but I think it ends too soon after they come back and uh, they, they play their verse, they go into the chorus and they just sing that twice and then it ends. So it lacks almost an ending more than there's too much middle. There's, there, there's no end they sing it twice and it just ends. Yeah. And this this contrasts a lot of other songs that actually has well-designed endings, like especially written almost to be a good ending. And we, we have one example in the next song that we're going to talk about where, you know, sometimes they just wrote an ending that is a standalone, unique part of the song just designed to be an ending and it's lovely. And here they really have no ending. It just ends after the, the chorus. So... Um, that would be my problem with that. And especially if they use the Ebo so prominently in the song and you think of other songs that end on a haunting note, 
they miss a chance to write an, an Ebo outro as well. Something is lacking at the end for me. So that will be the one I point to. Yeah, and look how they end it live too. You know, live, live, it doesn't end live. We talked about it, the just the way that they've extended it, and it also ends yeah. live on a big, giant minor key. You know, just like whereas the the strange ending on the major key to me always seemed odd. The fun thing about live is that they they end it like the album, but then they start up again. And they um, when the audience think, I mean, they they got you in uh, in '93. <laughs> yeah. When you think, oh, the song ends, and then they started it again, and that's how they sort of played it in the '90s, I believe, in particular. And that becomes more satisfying, and especially as they uh, included more audience participation. And this is one of those songs that uh, it's much more natural. You, you mentioned this as well. Much more natural place for the audience to sing that chant. I don't know why big country fans need to be counted in, where every other fan of other bands, they never count themselves in, but uh, never mind that. But that it's a very natural audience participation song, so that also is uh, works really well live. And for that reason alone, it's worth extending, uh, as they do.
So yeah, I think for me, that's uh, that's really this song. I must admit, when I first started looking at it and thinking, what could this song be about? And I always had some associations, but they were pointing a little bit all over the place. And I was contemplating, and I think I told you this a while back, that maybe this is one of those songs that is not about one thing, but it's about many things. Which was something that Stuart would use more as a lyric writing technique in the 90s, that there would be a song with many examples pointing to a greater thing. But it really seemed at the same time to be part of one narrative, like there was one band of brothers, so to speak, walking through a hostile environment of some sorts and uh, dealing with something. So, yeah, that's what I've landed on. And I feel pretty good about that interpretation. As good as you can, I guess, for such a vague song. Yeah, I think it's, that's a really cool interpretation. Yeah, it's great. All right. So how do you rank it? This one is tough. I mean, this is this is the toughest one for me because there are so many things that I love about this song, so many great moments in this song. Lyrically, the song is fantastic. But I got to come back to, you know, there are things about it that, that make me not listen to this song on the album as much as I do most of the others. So uh, this one brings up the rear for me. This is my number 10. Number 10. This is my number 10. I, I think, you know, there there are some absolutely brilliant moments in this song, but that middle section drags for me. Uh, the, the, the instrumental middle section drags for me. I wish there was more of a... I wish there were some more power chords in the song. <laughs> that sounds so dumb. But uh, the, the way they play it live, I feel like there's more heft to it and more power. And maybe it doesn't need that. I mean, and you could easily make the argument that it doesn't need that, and I would totally understand. But for me... Something about it drags a little bit in that long instrumental section and also the truncated ending, I think, weakens yeah. it somewhat. So it's just it's a song that I look at and I think, you know, this is a great song. There's so many great things about it. And yet I often skip it probably more than any other song on the album. So I hate to give it a 10, but it's still a great song. We've said this a million times, but it just happens to be my number 10. Ah, oh, that's... Uh... I'm not sure if it's surprising. I mean, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of strikes against a song to to make it fall significantly down on the list when they are so close. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I would I would say probably the reason I have it much higher than you is that uh, I embrace the lack of power chords. I I, I want the atmosphere. I, I would eschew more guitar in terms of even more atmosphere. <laughs> That's what this song has. Yeah, and I I get that. I get that. I totally do. Yeah. So so with embracing that, that probably makes me more forgiving also to the extended mid part. And there you also have my sort of coming from a prog background. Right. <laughs> this, this is this is a progressive song. That is it is a progressive middle part. So for me it's uh, it's it's much higher than you, but it's still somewhere in the middle. It's number five. Oh, okay. Cool. And uh, since we don't have a karate bar guy here, as we mentioned, yeah, I insist on you going to find him back for next time. I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna conduct a search party. He's got to be near in the area somewhere. But um, it's just as well because once again, there are zero karate barks in this song. See that he knows that this, and that's why he uh, escaped. Could be. Yeah. Could be. He'll come back when there are more karate barks to report. Then he'll never be back. <laughs> or he'll be dra- he'll be dragged back. <laughs> yeah, we need that guy. We need someone who contributes something of substance around here. Yeah, that's true. Good. All right, so let's take a look at the, the fan voting. 
We have um, – you had forgotten about that, haven't you? I did. Let's, <laughs> let's do it quick. Yeah, we need to do it quick, but that's quickly done. We have the fan voting for Lost Patrol. This is uh, shortly spoken. The uh, public agrees with me. This ranks number five overall with uh, the fans. I can tell you that eight people have this as their number one song. Wow. Ten people have this as their number ten song. Interesting. It has an uh, average of 5.68 when you calculate all the votes, and that's the ranking that's average. I would say that it's uh, it's well below number four, which was in a big country. It's also slightly ahead of number six, which was inwards. But it uh, places itself between those, so that's a good troika to be in. Cool. So that's Lost Patrol, number five of the people. Very cool, very cool. And yeah, it, it pained me to put this at 10. It's such a great song, but... Something's got to be there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was uh, wondering which one it would be. So there we have it. All right. Well, that wraps up episode 83. Uh, We got two songs out of the way. (laughs) I guess we'll get two more in the next one because Pearl Man's going to be a monster. So uh, anyway, we'll, we'll be back as soon as we can with episode 84. And uh, let us know what you guys think, what you guys think of these interpretations. As Fine said, if you have any others of your own that you want to throw in there, feel free, because a lot of these songs are very open to all sorts of different interpretations. So, you know, join us on the Facebook page. Send us an email, bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions. And uh, we will see you next time. We will. And uh, are you ready for some close action, Tom? I'm ready. Very close action. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Nice. But yeah, so what episode is this? Is it 70 what? 7? 78? 83. 83? <laughs> there's an, out, there's an outtake. <laughs> uh, yeah, is it really 83? Yeah. 82 was the Yuletide. Oh, wow. Well, that's good because that's the year the album came out. That means we'll have to finish the entire album in episode 83. Uh, yeah, well, we, we have made monster episodes before, so why not? Six-hour episode. <laughs> that will be the next goal. Actually, we haven't quite reached five. We were four hours forty-seven. Is our record? <laughs> oh my god! Was that one of the non-Baron Baron? No, that was probably something else. Maybe Steel Town. I don't know. It was the the previous Yuletide to the last one. Oh my gosh! That was four hours forty-seven minutes. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst Christmas gift ever. That's why people haven't caught up, you know. They're still listening to the Yuletide from uh, 2017. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I I had to change my microphone again. So I hope it sounds (laughs) similar to the previous. (laughs) 83 episodes, 83 microphones. (laughs) No, I go back to the old...
All right, so let's get this thing on the road. Okay. You ready? 83, man. 83. All right, 83. I got it. Welcome to 83. Welcome to episode 83. Episode 83! All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Great Divide podcast. Episode 83. All right. Ready for Lost Patrol? Yep. All right. Let me, let me look at my notes here. I look forward to this. Jesus Christ. I look forward to finally finding out. Oh, you will. <laughs> I know I will. <laughs> Look at us doing on-the-spot uh, research. I brought the last patroller by getting me Mika put on. What's interesting about this song that really, I'm surprised really didn't hit me. Uh, <laughs> my voice just squeaked. Shall we shall we aim for the Wednesday after next? Yeah, that's good. Let's do to that. Pick it up then. Yeah. Okay. We have a plan. I'll talk to you then. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 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 All right. 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 Bye-bye.